Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. A little flare into left. That's going to get down and the Cardinals are going to strike first. Edmund on his way to second. It's the daily double for the Birds. It's one to nothing. Swing and a shot headed for the gap. That'll get down and score one. Donovan around second. He's on his way to third. He's got the green light. He's going to score. Mercado breaks it open. It's three nothing. And there's a shot hammer deep left field at the track wall. Into the bullpen. That'll do it. DeYoung, a three-run bomb. And he cranks the ball. offense um they're coming together and a lot of different guys in that lineup including our bench could beat you and it's showing and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch alongside tanner hendrickson and grant francis i'm brandon kiley alex ferrario out today he'll be back in tomorrow getting a much deserved day off the cardinals though not taking any days off lately they are now averaging more than five runs per game this season. T-Bone, a gentleman by the name of Ben Cerruti, tweeted this at me over the weekend. Now that they are averaging five runs a game, they are on pace for 810 over the course of the season. The last time that the Cardinals scored that many runs in a single season was... Oh, gosh, never? 2004, of course, oh, because that is the year that we always known. reference here on this very radio station when it comes to, or specifically this show, when it comes to the Cardinals offense. Man, in their last 10 games, the Cardinals have cracked the code of Kenley Jansen twice. The Cardinals have put up six runs against Freddie Peralta. They scratched across three in a win against Corbin Burns, one of the best pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. They knock out both Julio Urias and Clayton Kershaw before the end of the fourth inning over this weekend. They're not just putting up big-time games against the terrible pitching, like seeing Madison Bumgarner and then watching him getting DFA'd the following week. No, 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 no. They're doing this against real postseason caliber pitching right now. We are watching the offense that we talked about all offseason. It took a while to get here, but now that we're here, you got a top five offense, at least in the month of May, in all of Major League Baseball. This is what the Cardinals were constructed to do. The pitching, there will be some that will tell you it's getting better. It's stay- No, it's the same pitching. It's the exact same pitching that we've seen all season. The difference for the Cardinals right now and the reason why the Cardinals have gone in their last 
what is it, 14 games, 11 and three? It's because this offense, it is all about the offense right now. Yeah, you're seeing the depth of this lineup. When you when you look at them offensively, they are getting production one through nine. I mean, Mercado had five RBIs yesterday, and, and they're being aggressive on the base paths. And as a wise young pup once said, <laughs> named Tanner Hendrickson, slug, baby, slug. They are slugging this month, and they're out slugging their problems with the pitching staff because you're right, the pitching staff hasn't changed. Right now, this month, they're second in OPS, and they're second in slugging percentage across Major League Baseball, and that's what's led to them scoring the most runs in baseball in the month of May. It's amazing. They are just doing a ton of damage, and, and it's right in the middle of that order, too. We said it. Once Arnado gets going, you're going to see the offense takes take off. What's he doing? He's playing well. You got Nolan Gorman, who's still playing like an all-star, and now just mashing left-handed pitching all of a sudden, even though he never did it in the minor <laughs> leagues, which is incredible. Goldie's being freaking Goldie. We're not even talking about him. And then you've also got Wills Contreras, who's been playing well also. And Tommy Evans, like Babe Ruth against left-handed pitching, like you're seeing the depth of the lineup that we saw in the first series against Toronto. And to your point, they're doing it against postseason caliber pitching. Kershaw, Urias, uh, Jansen, you said it, is a right-handed guy that comes out of the pen. And even early on the year, you saw them do damage to Bassett, who's been like one of the best pitchers in baseball since he got roughed up by the St. Louis Cardinals. So we're finally seeing what I thought this offense would be, and that's a modern offense, one that hits for a ton of power. And they also got guys that drive up pitch count like Lars Newpar, Brendan Donovan, who have great eyes, and they're now being aggressive on the bases as well. You didn't even mention their second best hitter in the month of May. Who did I forget? Paul DeYoung. Oh, Paul yeah, DeYoung Paul has D. been spectacular since his return from the from AAA, from being down there for a while, trying to figure out his swing, getting things back on track. My dude is just slugging 550 in the month of May. Like, no harm, no foul. The average is down. That's what we expect. The batting or the on-base percentage, though, is still pretty damn high so far. And he is slugging like crazy. It is all up, all down this lineup. It feels like they can do no wrong, regardless of who they go with. Uh, somebody on the text line says, guys, it's just about the warm weather. That's what's changed for them. Sure. Honestly, I don't care. I don't care what changed. I don't think that it is a... Like they switched five different swings overnight. And now once the calendar turned to May, the Cardinals figured everything out. I think a lot of this stems from confidence. And it's the conversation that we had a lot in the month of April, which was like, what comes first? Do they win? And that brings the confidence or do they get the confidence? And then that gets the winning. I think the biggest change for the Cardinals is the guy that you mentioned. And that's Nolan Arenado, who in the month of May is batting 340 with a slugging percentage of almost 700. He's been one of the best hitters in the sport so far this month. And when that guy is hitting like this in the middle of your order, it just changes everything because now it takes a little bit of the pressure off of Brendan Donovan and Wilson Contreras and Tommy Edmond and Lars Newtbar. Instead of feeling like they need to come up to the plate and hit a five run home run every time that they step up. Now they can all take a little bit of a step back, breathe a sigh of relief and say, all right, our big boys are in the middle of the order. Goldie's hitting well. Gorman looks amazing. Nolan Arenado is going to clean things up for us. And then everybody else can just kind of do their job. Everybody has a different job in this lineup. Not everybody's expected to produce the runs that Nolan Arenado is. Like, no, uh, Lars Nupar, man, get on base. Like, that's it. Just your entire job, every time that you step up to the plate, get on base and then score runs. And he's doing that at a really high level so far this month. He's getting on base 36% of the time. That's great. Hey, Paul DeYoung, we don't need you to hit 290. Hit for power. When you have an opportunity to slug, go up there and do it. Brendan Donovan, drive up the pitch count because that is just, it is something that is going to help us get to the bullpen and then we can take advantage of our opportunities against their pin. 
that's what's happening right now is the roles are starting to make a lot of sense. It's like when we came into the season with the Blues, there were a lot of people that were expecting Jake Neighbors to have like 20 plus goals this year. I mean, that was totally unfair to the kid. His role should have been like, be a really nice role player. Be a guy that maybe gets to 10 or 15 by the end of the season. Play like 12 to 13 minutes a night. But they needed more than that because of the role that he was placed into. And that's what it felt like early in the season for some of these guys that were expected to be like one or two rungs higher than what they needed to be. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I think when Arnado was struggling, you felt like the bottom of the order had to do more than what you're expecting from it. It felt like when Arnado's struggling, you need like your six, seven hitters to be your RBI producers because you, your five hole guys may be getting on base more than he should be because Arnado's not getting on. So it felt more like, you know, you've got like Edmund DeYoung that are supposed to be RBI guys. And it's like, that's not their role. Their role is to maybe do some damage. And if guys are on base like Arnaldo Contreras in that five, four or five spot, then hopefully drive those guys in. So I think now that you've seen Arnaldo get going, you can see that this team does feel more confident. It doesn't feel like all the pressure is on them because when Arnaldo struggles, the team struggles. And then all the pressure goes on the team as a whole, plus Nolan Arnaldo. So now that he's going, and to your point, Paul DeYoung has been one of their best hitters. And every time I think to myself, like I did uh, in the game yesterday, where I'm like, man, Paul DeYoung's really struggling. I wonder if he's going to lose his job. And then he takes like a change up loan in and just belted into yep. the bullpen he, he's he been great and he's the guy for me that really lengthens the lineup because if he can be what you were talking about where he hits like 240 250 but he's got solid pop and we've seen he can be a 30 home run guy you're talking about having a guy that has 30 home run power that's hitting seventh for you in your lineup on an everyday basis not a lot of teams can say that's a that. championship lineup that that's a championship lineup. that's a lineup that you can look at and go holy bleep where do i get my break i mean yeah, Donovan's hitting eighth, but that guy's going to look at eight pitches in yep. that bat, and maybe nine is where you look at it and you go, okay, well, I can get that guy up. Mercado just had three hits and drove in five <laughs> runs, so good luck going up against this team. This lineup is as deep as I, I, I think it's the best lineup they've had since opening day right now. I, I think now that they've gotten the outfield starting to show some production, you're starting to see how good this lineup can be, and it's not like the outfield's taking a step back defensively by what they're throwing out there right now. And that depth is what I was talking about when I compared it to 2013. I know Alex makes the joke that I compared it to 2004. 2013, I thought, was always the closest comparison because they just had so many high-level hitters. It wasn't about any one guy that was going to just dominate on any given day, although they had some really good players in that lineup. It was about, hey, one through nine, regardless of who we throw into this lineup, it's going to be a really tough out for whoever the opposing starting pitcher is. And that's how I feel about them right now. And so... Coming off of what was a massive homestand for the Cardinals in the seven game stretch against the Brewers and the Dodgers, we said, hey, like four and three probably gets you back in anything more than that. And you're like, OK, yeah, Cardinals are back and up going five and two in this stretch. They're 11 and three in their last 14 games on May 6th. This team was 10 and four with the worst record in the National League. They were last place in the NL Central. They were 10 games back of the top spot in the division. And they were 13 games back of the Braves for the best record in the league. You are now five games back in the Central. You're third place in your own division. You're nine games back of the Braves for the top record in the league. But you're just four games back of the wild card right now as well. I'm back in, dude. I'm officially back on board with the Cardinals. It didn't take much. I was probably back after the Brewer series, if we're being totally honest. But what they did over the weekend just got me even more on board. And now you go on the road for an Ohio road trip against Cincinnati and Cleveland. It's almost like the opposite of what we were saying about the Dodgers series. Uh, Cleveland can't score runs like they, they have really nice pitching, but they cannot score right now. So you're going to have to go in there and find a way to scratch and claw some runs across the board. You're going to go up against some really good pitching. 
Cincinnati, you should just dominate. You should yeah. win three of these four games. You should continue racking up these series, and then they go against my sorry-ass Royals here in St. Louis. That is not going to go well for Kansas City. I can promise you that. They're terrible. So you're starting to feel like there's a little bit of confidence. There's some momentum that is building here in St. Louis. T-Bone, are you ready to officially jump back on board with the St. Louis Cardinals? Yeah, I'm jumping back on board because I I, I was one of those that said they got to go four and three on this homestand because I thought a split with the Dodgers would be good. And, and I thought they should take two of three from Milwaukee because they were dealing, their offense has just been really struggling and pitching-wise they're dealing with injuries now. The fact that they took th- three of four from, I think they're the best team in the NL or they were second best team going into that series, the LA Dodgers were. That, that That's a sign for me that this, this team is back. And, and they did it the way we talked about. Were they going to outpitch the L.A. Dodgers? No. They were going to have to outscore them. They were just going to have to beat up on their quality pitching that they had. I mean, they threw two of the top arms in baseball in Urias and Kershaw, and they destroyed those guys. So, yeah, I'm bought back in. I still believe it's going to be an offense-oriented team, and I think they've got a ceiling right now in terms of the success they can have with their rotation. But, yeah, I'm bought back in. I'm ready to talk about the trade deadline already. I'm ready to add to this team. I'm ready to build this team up for the postseason run they're going to go on. We'll do that. We'll we'll get to Cleveland and what they might mean for the Cardinals. We'll get to that later on in the week. I'm prepared Um, to have my heart broken in October. If you are buying back into the Cardinals, we talked to John Mosellock last week. If you missed our conversation with him, check it out on the podcast page. I think it's well worth your time. Uh, It also helps explain the outfield situation right now. If people are buying back in, it puts more pressure on Mo. That, that's what it really does. This team will dictate the decisions that are made at the deadline. And right now, this team is playing at a level that will determine whether or not Mo adds significant pieces. He needs to add significant pieces to this team. It, it might just be one. It may just be, hey, we need to go out there and get a guy that can start game one of the NLDS for us. Because that feels to me like what they're missing. I think they've got basically everything else. This rotation is not great, but it does have pretty decent depth. They're missing a guy that I feel confident can throw seven innings with a one or two earned runs against them against really high-level teams that can help them get through the postseason and keep that bullpen fresh for the next day. That's what they're missing right now. And, and I agree. It puts pressure on Mo, and I, I think you might be right. They're missing a one piece. I, I would argue maybe two in that rotation because they need more swing and miss in the rotation. It's the only part of this team that I don't think is modernized. Bullpen's got swing and miss. They are slugging the crap out of the baseball in this lineup. The pitching just doesn't have enough swing and miss. The other reason I say it puts pressure on Mo because the National League is wide open. Yeah. There is no like true dominant team. And you can argue Atlanta, but they're dealing with some pitching injuries right now too. The Mets are f- starting to turn things around. But like LA, like I-, I still don't buy what LA is, and they've got major pitching injuries to be concerned about now. There is no like boogeyman that you look at and go, Wow, there are, like last year, there were three top teams, I thought. The Dodgers were a really good team. You had the Braves and you had the Mets. I don't see that right now in the NL. I think the NL is very open to where one move, to your point, you bring in an ace, you could be talking about a team that I can't believe I'm saying this, could fight their way back up to the conversation to try and get a buy in the playoffs. Ken Rosenthal said over the weekend he thinks that the Cardinals could still win this division and not just win it, could win it by 10 games at the end of the season. And that's coming from Ken Rosenthal, who doesn't uh, look at this team on a day-to-day basis the same way that we do. By the way, that's Ken Rosenthal, who wrote like two weeks ago that the Cardinals had lost their way with the Wilson Contreras situation. And he wasn't wrong how quickly things can change, given how terrible this National League Central Division is. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie coming up in about 15 minutes or so. We got to talk about the PGA Championship from the weekend. A local St. Louis native was the story of the tournament, despite the fact that Brooks Kepka once again won the tournament. We'll get to that coming up in about 15 minutes. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. But 
coming up next, we got to talk about a gentleman that's actually taking advantage of his opportunity in the outfield. It's time to give him an everyday opportunity. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. see what Mercado can do with two strikes. Swing and a shot headed for the gap. That'll get down and score one. Donovan around second. He's on his way to third. He's got the green light. He's going to score. Mercado breaks it open. It's 3-0. Hard hit. Throw for a base hit. Mercado does it again. Sharply hit and in the right field. That'll score two runs. Mercado having a huge day. A five your number nine this was the first team that believed in me when i was 18 years old fast forward 10 years later and you know i get to put on their big league uniform and to me it's such a special feeling uh to come out here and help the guys win ball games um and you know it's been it's been kind of a crazy ride but just being back here is an awesome it's been awesome Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest as Oscar Mercado had one heck of a weekend for himself since getting the call up to the bigs. He has appeared in five games. He is 6-4-11 at the plate. He scored three runs. He has stolen two bases and then, of course, has the five RBI day, including a couple of doubles that were able to send some runs in. Uh, Tanner, I think he's your guy. He should be an everyday outfielder right now. You look at who they have available to them. I think Brendan Donovan is probably starting every day, whether it's in the outfield or at second base. I think you're going to see occasional opportunities from Alec Burleson, who over the weekend I thought looked pretty good, all things considered. And I do think he is a meaningful upgrade defensively over what you were getting in the outfield from Juan Yepes. Burleson is a capable outfielder. Juan Yepes is a DH that you can put in the outfield. And there are very significant differences between the two. But what you're getting right now, especially when the rest of your lineup is hitting the way that it is from Oscar Mercado, is basically like what we were talking about last year with Harrison Bader. If he hits, great. But otherwise, he adds some defense, he adds some running on the bases, and he adds some energy to a team that can use that stuff. So for me, Oscar Mercado is, maybe it's not an everyday role, but a most-day role in the outfielder uh, in the outfield right now. I, I agree with you. I, I think the outfield is set against righties and lefties for the time being is Mercado's in right, Newpar's in center, and Donovan's in left. And and I would ride the hot hand with Mercado right now because he's playing well and he's providing a spark to this team. Like I know we talked about when they were losing, they need somebody to provide a spark, and they're playing good baseball now, and it feels even better because Mercado's doing this. A guy that was originally drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals got swapped in 20, whatever, 2018, 2019 for two minor leaguers that you never really saw. I think you saw Capel, and that was it. But He's he's providing a spark in his base running ability too to be able to steal the base as you said. I mean he's got two stolen bases right now and he's getting on base in that nine spot. It's the double leadoff that I've always talked about. Now he's getting on base for Newbar, and if Newbar gets out or gets on base, then you've got guys on for the heart of your order. So, and I love the way that sets up too because Newt is so patient at the plate that it gives him an opportunity to steal that base for Mercado while yeah. Newbar is up at the plate. It works out well, and, and, and it works out perfectly because then he, if Newbar gets on and he's getting on base at a great clip, you've got two guys on right now with the heart of that order coming up, which we've seen. Goldie's been awesome this year. Gorman's been incredible. Uh, Contreras played well. Arnado's really playing well. We just ran through his numbers in the last segment. So I, I would ride the hot hand. I actually think that 
most of their lineup is set with like maybe making one or two tweaks when there's a left-hander in because I think the infield is set now with Young at short, Gorman second, Goldie and Arnado, and the outfield, as I said, is Donovan, uh, Newpar, and uh, Mercado for me, and you got Contreras behind the plate, and then you can figure out what you want to do at DH, and against lefties, the only other tweak I see is you somehow work Tommy Edmond, and maybe you put him at second and then put Gorman at the DH spot. So I think for all the talk, if they need a consistent lineup, right now it feels like Eight to nine of those spots should be locked up for just about anybody against a right-hander or left-handed pitcher. And the reason why that happened, and this is why I pushed back against that narrative early in the season, is not because you handed guys opportunities. It's because the production is dictating who's getting into the lineup. Oscar Mercado has produced and has swung his way into the Cardinals' everyday conversation. Uh, You're seeing Tommy Edmond right now. What he's doing against left-handed pitching is so impressive He's got to be a guy that is in your lineup every time there's a left-handed pitcher that is in the game, whether that be coming off of the bench against a lefty or starting against a left-handed starter. And the same thing is true for, like, Newt Bar's your everyday center fielder right now. Defensively, he's been good. I think you can make an argument that he's actually been better in center field this year than Dylan Carlson was. I know some will push back against it. I just disagree. It's an eye test thing. I think that Newt Bar's been slightly better. And you look at the production at the plate, there's no contest. And then I think this is where we get to an interesting conversation with the outfield mix. Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill, it doesn't seem like are too far away. Now, we're probably like a week away from having a real conversation about this because they still need to make their way back and then they needed a rehab stint. But when they return, I'm not sure they're immediately guaranteed a roster spot. Now, a lot of this is dictated by whether or not Mercado stays hot. If he doesn't, if he starts to slow down, which is very possible, even likely, then maybe there's a conversation to be had, especially with Dylan Carlson basically being in the role that we're talking about right now for Mercado. But if he doesn't, I think one, maybe both of those guys for me would be optioned. Because like you look at Juan Yepes, we were talking about this during the break. He's basically felt, uh, found his role as a starter against left-handed pitching, as a DH, and then a bench bat. That's that's what he was supposed to be as a player, and that's what he now is for the Cardinals because the other roles have been taken. I don't know that I want Tyler O'Neill over Juan Yepes as a hitter. I think that I could make a pretty strong argument that Yepes is the better option in that specific role. Dylan Carlson, what is his role with his with this team? Like, what do you do with him? He's not as good defensively, in my opinion, as Lars Newtbar. I think he's like comparable at best. To what you're seeing right now out of Oscar Mercado, he doesn't have the same speed as Oscar Mercado. He certainly is not the same base dealer as Oscar Mercado. Like, what is Carlson's role if and when he returns to this lineup? I, I fourth outfielder. I, I think he's back to where he was at opening day. I remember when we had the conversation when we were down at uh, Ballpark Village at the Budweiser Brew House on opening day. We we're like, is, is Carlson really going to be a fourth outfielder? Like, Ollie said he's going to be one. Is he really going to be that guy? I, I think that's his role. I mean, if Mercado's playing well. He, he's got to be in the lineup because Carlson hasn't hit right-handed pitching in his entire career. And I agree with you. I, I think Newtbar's better in center, and I think he's got a stronger arm and a more accurate arm to be playing in center field. And then I, I think you stick with Brendan Donovan in the left field because he, he puts together good at-bats, he gets on base, and he's hitting for average. So I, I think at best, Carlson would be a fourth outfielder. But to your point of like what happens, my, my gut tells me when O'Neill and Carlson come back, and, and we're running on the big assumption of if Mercado is still playing well, my guess is Yepes will go down and O'Neill will fill his spot as kind of the right-handed bench bat. I kind of agree with you. I, I like Yepes better in terms of I think he has better ball-to-bat skill, but he's, he's he hasn't been that impressive early on here uh, since he's been up. And then I, I think what they do is, based on what Mo told us last week, where he said, 
He specifically said, we want to see more of Alec Burleson. I thought he meant they wanted him to be starting a lot, but I think they're stuck on Donovan. The coaching staff is stuck on Donovan being the left fielder for right now, and I can't disagree with that. I, Donovan's playing well. I, I think Burleson stays up, and I think they might consider optioning Carlson. And the reason I say option Carlson before O'Neal is I think you keep up O'Neal here to see if you can just squeeze a little bit more out of him and see if you can build up some of that trade value that they're hoping because I, I think they want to move him. I think Carlson goes down because it's clear he needs to work on stuff against right-handed pitching. And for everybody that tells me, oh, don't give up, I'm not really giving up on him, but he definitely needs work. He's had over 1,300 plate appearances at the major league level, and he's still not hitting right-handed pitching, and you haven't seen any sign of improvement of it. So he needs to go down, in my opinion. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. We'll get to those coming up in about 15 minutes or so. I had uh, missed this. This came out about um, 10 or 15 minutes ago. Some very unfortunate news to pass along. Uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch legend, Hall of Famer Rick Hummel uh, has passed away. He passed away over the weekend. Uh, This has been reported in the Post. He had a short, aggressive illness, according to Derek Gould's reporting. Uh, He was 77 years old. If you spent any amount of time, and I mean any amount of time, around Rick Hummel, you knew the game better because of it. Um, you heard baseball stories unlike anything that you can really hear from anybody because he spent so much time around the St. Louis Cardinals. He covered the team for five decades here in St. Louis. I mean, this is a guy that covered Bob Gibson. He talked regularly with Stan Musial, um, and he was basically the through line of the history of Cardinals baseball. This is a guy that... Um, knew the team, knew the organization, knew the players on a personal level because coverage used to be so much different than it is now where you actually got to know the guys inside of the clubhouse. You could really get to know their stories and who they were as people. And so he he really knew these guys on and off of the field. Um, it's just devastating news. Um, he had retired from the post, but he was still continuing to do some coverage. And so I... We had seen him out of the ballpark when we went down there most recently. Um, the news from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Hall of Fame baseball writer, uh, Rick Hummel, the commish, has passed away at the age of 77. Our uh, condolences go out to anybody that was friends with Rick Hummel and certainly to his family as well. Uh, passed away at the age of 77 over the weekend. Coming up next, no easy transition here. Uh, Brooks Kepka, Jimmy Butler, They have raised their games in the biggest moments um, in a meaningful way. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He's all the way back. Kepka conquers the PGA and a kill. That's what it sounded like over the weekend on CBS as Brooks Kepka wins yet again another major championship. 
Kepka was hurt. And I think that's part of why he ended up going to the live tour. I think it's a, like if you look for one main reason, it was probably the money. If you look for the second reason is because he was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to compete at the highest level in the PGA in the near future. So I might as well go ahead and lock in a hundred million dollars right away. And that's what he was able to do. And now he comes back over and it's like, oh, yeah, Brooks Kepka is still amazing at this. Like whether he's competing regularly and live or on the PGA Tour, the guy is unbelievable. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit, T-Bone, because you look at what Brooks Kepka has done in his career. 27% of his wins as a professional golfer have come in major championships. Unbelievable. Now, to put that in context, Jack Nicklaus, who is like the best major winner ever, has less than 25% of his career wins in a championship level game, uh, in a in a PGA championship or a major cha- title. Tiger Woods, 18% for context. Again, Brooks Kepka is at 27% in his career. I was looking over the weekend prior to Kepka officially winning this tournament. I was like, hey, who's the comp for Jimmy Butler? Because what we're seeing from him right now in the NBA playoffs is a guy that went from like, and also ran during the regular season as like, hey, really good player. Everybody would love to have uh, Jimmy Butler on their team to now being like, oh, bleep. We got to face Jimmy Butler in the postseason. The guy is averaging more than 30 points per game, seven rebounds, six assists per game in the postseason. And now for his entire career, he averages more points on a better efficiency scoring in the postseason than he does during the regular season. I was thinking to myself, who's the comparison for that? Madison Bumgarner was the first one that came to mind where it's like, hey, really nice regular season pitcher. Then you get into the playoffs. One of the best postseason performers I've ever seen. I think the real answer is Brooks Kepka. Like Jimmy Butler and Brooks Kepka are the same guy and they show up when it seems to matter the most and they just kind of take everything else off. Like, yeah, I'm going to save my energy for the stuff that really matters to me and then I'm going to go be better than everybody else in the sport. Yeah, I, I I think you're right on there because we were talking about, I think it was during the Masters, where it was like, man, Kepka just like shows up in these major championships, just Fs around, and he's like in the top three. Otherwise, it's like you could watch him at any other event, and you wouldn't even know Kepka's there. And yes, he's won some that are outside the major championships, but I feel like a lot of times when you're watching golf and he's not in a major championship, it's just kind of he's like floating around, kind 100%. of in the middle of the pack. And, and Butler's kind of the same way. You never really talk about Jimmy Butler in the regular season. You know he's a great player. He's always been a really good player. But then you get into the postseason, and this team's a, what was it, seven or eight seed, and they're taking on the Boston Celtics, and they're just beating the snot out of them. Like, And Butler's the guy that's leading the charge for this team. He's been great in the playoffs. You saw it in that, I think it was the bubble year, where he was really good and phenomenal there as well. So I couldn't agree with you more. Butler's one of those guys that's just a true playoff performer, and the regular season doesn't mean as much. He still puts up really good numbers but he's able to take his game to the next level. It's kind of the guy that we've been talking about that the Cardinals really need on their offense when you're looking at them as a whole when they get to the postseason. You always got really good players in Arnado, Goldie, uh, Contreras now in this lineup. You need them to take to the next level, and they haven't really had that guy that stepped up in playoff performances yet. And I say yet because it's very small sample size with them, but that's what Butler and Kepka are. You get them to the biggest stage, and you know those guys are going to take their game to just the next level. Since 2017... Brooks Kepka now has a top five finish at the Masters twice, has three wins at the PGA Championship, two wins at the U.S. Open, and finished top five at the U.S. Uh, at the Open Championship as well. I think he's going to finish with a career Grand Slam. I think we're going to see that from him. And there's only five other golfers that have ever done that in the history of the sport. I think Brooks is going to be the sixth. Now, it's going to require a little luck, a lot of health, and it's going to require some time, 
but he's only 33 years old. This is not a guy that has like been around forever. He's basically been in his prime for like five years now. I think it's probably got to happen within the next three-ish years for us to feel confident about it. But, I mean, the way that he's per- he performed even this year at the Masters, he collapsed, but he was right in contention up until the very end. I, I think we're going to see him win a Masters, and then it just comes down to the Open for him. I, I think we're going to see that out of Brooks Kepka before his career is over, which means that he's going to go down as one of the greatest golfers that we've ever seen. And for us to be able to say that about a guy who I'm not totally sure likes golf, <laughs> he likes winning, he likes money, but I'm not sure how much he really enjoys golf. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. But a guy that I know does love golf is a native St. Louisan. And this is somebody that absolutely captured the hearts and minds of everybody who was watching a golf tournament over the weekend at the PGA Championship. I'm, of course, referencing St. Louis native Michael Block. Yes! Magic! The fairy tale story gets better. No way. Roy, did it go in? Uh, it's it's amazing. Uh, I'm living a dream. I'm making sure that I enjoy this moment. I've learned that after the my 46 years of life, that uh, it's not going to get better than this. There's no way, no chance in hell. So uh, I'm going to enjoy this and thank you. Michael Block is from St. Louis. He ended up going to UMSL before his college career was over. Uh, He's a guy that is a PGA pro. That's how he ended up earning his opportunity at the PGA Championship. He had never made the cut for this event. And now he is in it at the very end. He's playing really well for the vast majority of this tournament. And he finishes with an ace on Sunday in that round has an up-and-down putt that ends up finishing him in the top 15, earned $300,000 at the end of this event, was automatically invited back to next year's PGA Championship because of his finish, and has been now admitted to next week's tournament and has been getting some invites to other tournaments as well. Sometimes golf has the opportunity to really create stories like this, and they emerge in a way that none of us are expecting. Michael Block won the weekend, despite the fact that he finished 15th in the tournament. Yeah, he, he definitely won the week. I mean, it's such a cool story. And, and the fact that, I mean, you mentioned he got an ace on. I think it's 15. Not only did he get, the ball didn't even bounce. He <laughs> it was like amazing. Right hole. It was a switch. It was unbelievable. And, and you get the putt that seals him in to get the invite automatically next year for a guy that had to go through the qualifying and get invited into these kind of tournaments and hasn't really done a whole lot on the PGA Tour. It, it's just such a cool story. And the fact that he's in this from around this area and went to UMSL, which I didn't even know until last night after he'd gone through yeah. the rounds, it, it is a really cool story. And, and it's these are always the kind of stories that changed the weekend for golf because it's always one of those where it's like I'm watching the championship and again I'm, I'm not the biggest golf guy I usually tune in to really just the final round and to see him and then start to understand the story of what he's gone through to get to that point yesterday is just really cool 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show coming up next we'll get to some questions and answers if you guys have any questions get them in on the air comfort service text line we'll answer them coming up next you're on 101 ESPN we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. 
alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. 314-399-9646 is the air cover service text line for questions and answers from the 314. Guys, the Cardinals and the Padres basically have the same record. The Mets are not much better. Of those three teams, who do you think is the least who do you think is the most likely to make the playoffs and who do you think is the least likely to make the playoffs? So how would you rank their chances to make the postseason? Cardinals, Padres, and Mets. I would say Cardinals would be number one for me in terms of most likely because of the division. They don't have to go through the Dodgers or the Braves to get there. They can just win the division with like 85 games and get in. So I would say they would be number one for me. How would you rank the other two, T-Bone? So I agree Cardinals one. I would probably, and I've changed my tune in the last like week, week and a half. I would probably go to the Mets, though I still think they are in a tougher division very encouraging signs from Scherzer and Verlander uh, yesterday against the Guardians. And I know the Guardians don't have an offense, but Verlander was awesome in that Sunday night game. Scherzer was pretty good. Uh, they're starting to kind of click like the St. Louis Cardinals. You're slowly starting to see them build some momentum in the right direction. Padres haven't built up any momentum yet. They, I don't know if they won yesterday. I'd have to look. I wasn't paying that close attention yesterday to they their did. game. Okay, so they lost two or three to Boston. Mm-hmm. Like they, they are still struggling. And this is about that time where I've I said this. And the first month, month and a half, weirdish happens in baseball. If you're not starting to turn to turn it around like right now, like San Diego is, there's some underlying issues. And I don't believe there's too much star power there. But for whatever reason, they just cannot get over the hump. I, I'm actually concerned about them that they can't turn this around in time. So they have done the opposite of what the Cardinals have done. They've lost 11 of their last 14 while the Cardinals have won 11 of their last 14. And that came while they had opportunities to pick up some games in their division against the Royals. They lost two out of three against Kansas City. That cannot happen. When you go up against the Royals, you have to dominate them. Like They're off today but the Padres start a three-game set tomorrow in Washington against the Nationals they need to sweep that series that's the kind of thing that when you're 21 and 26 and in that division you need to start picking up games urgently and when you go up against these terrible teams on your schedule you've got to find ways to get wins so I'm with you I think I would go one Cardinals two Mets three Padres in that order because of the division and the teams that are around them you want to you want to know something crazy about that just looking at the standings right now the Athletics have scored 176 runs this season. The Padres have scored just six more Jeez. than the A's. Yeah, they're offensively, they're struggling. And Soto's been having an up-and-down year. Bogarts has been really their only consistent guy. And now they're missing Machado who got put the on the I.O. The only team that scored fewer runs this year than the Padres in the National League is the Marlins. That's it. Wow. 14th. That's surprising. And, and to your point, they got to start picking up wins. I mean, they just lost. They've played the Dodgers six times this month, and they lost five of six. So, like, they, they've got to start racking up wins against the other teams because the Dodgers have put them back in their pedestal and show that they're the bigger brothers still. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, when do you think we will see Jordan Walker again? Are they still having him change his swing? I wonder what his mindset is now. I, I Maybe I just, it's kind of like the analytics thing where if I changed the word analytics to information, I feel like people would be more approachable with it because it feels easier to understand for people. And it's not me putting down anybody. It just... I think analytics has become like the boogeyman where it's that's that's all things that are bad and old school is all things that are good when it's probably somewhere in between. Not all analytics are necessary, but if you pull out the stuff that's good to pull out the stuff that can give you an advantage, I think it's helpful. I don't think Jordan Walker is like changing his swing or overhauling the way that he's playing baseball. I think they're trying to get him more lift. And there's a reason for that. Look at the way that the Cardinals are winning right now. 
instead of me saying they're trying to get him to hit the ball in the air, I think it's better if I say they're trying to get him to hit more line drives because that's the way that Jordan Walker's swing can work at its best. And he was on the ground far too often in the big leagues. And he continued to be on the ground far too often in the minors. I think a subtle shift in his swing can't help that. And the Cardinals clearly felt that way as well. I think there were a couple of things that were going on with Walker that didn't play into his um, standing with the Cardinals. Was one, the team was losing, and that was not his fault, but keeping him up here was almost doing him a disservice because it put more pressure on him to perform while he was really struggling at the plate. And two, he was on the ground way too often, and they had a bunch of outfield options, and so they were like, hey, it's probably best for us, and it's probably best for Walker to send him back down to the minors. And oh, by the way, his defense was terrible while he was up here in the big leagues. He was the worst defender that they had in the outfield. So I think we're going to see Jordan Walker again. He's starting to hit the ball hard again. He's starting to get some of those results as well. He's been a little bit unlucky down there. I think you'll see Jordan Walker probably at some point by like the 4th of July. I think we'll see him back up with the big league club. I I kind of agree with you. I I was thinking around July or post uh, deadline because I think they're going to make some trades in terms of uh, shipping out some outfielders, a.k.a. Tyler O'Neill. Uh, but to your point, I mean, his line drive percentage is basically right where it was last year, 23% now. So he's starting to get the ball off the ground more, and his ground ball percentage is around where it was last year as well in AA. I, I don't know if I would put a timeline on it, though, though I think July and August is hopefully like the target date for the Cardinals. I, I think as long as they've got production in the outfield from whoever it is that's out there, if it's Newbar, Mercado, and Donovan like it is right now, I think they'll stick with those guys and they need an everyday opportunity for Walker. And, and also Walker's got to be performing in triple A. Yeah. They're not just going to go, Hey, he's, he's hitting 217, and he's starting to hit line drives. No, you're going to have to see some power come back into his swing before they call him back up. So I think I, it's similar to what we saw last year with Gorman the first time around when like, agree, you just pretend like Walker never got up to the big league level. What happened was Gorman just, he was hitting the ball so hard, so consistently they were like, okay, We've got to call this guy up. What, what are we going to do? We're just going to let him continue to tear the cover off of the baseball in the AAA. It doesn't make any sense for us. It's time for us to call him up. I think the same thing could happen for Jordan Walker here in the not too distant future. And that's why I don't know if there should be really a timeline on it. I understand why everybody wants to see him back Agreed. up here. You don't want to rush him back up here, though. When he starts playing well and an everyday spot opens up, whether it's injury or lack of performance in the outfield, that's when you'll see Walker get the call up. Uh, from the 314, guys, do you think Oscar Mercado has solidified himself as a big league option in the outfield? And could this be the final straw for O'Neill? I think it is until his production falls off. I view him kind of similarly to Paul DeYoung. Paul DeYoung's your everyday shortstop until proven otherwise. I think eventually that time will come. I think there will come a point in time this season where Paul DeYoung is not starting at shortstop every day and instead it's Tommy Edmond. And when that happens, it'll be Nolan Gorman and Brendan Donovan getting the everyday opportunities at second base. I also don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but you ride the hot hand while you've got it. So Paul DeYoung's starting right now and Oscar Mercado should be starting in the outfield right now. If and when he slows down, which probably will happen because he's basically been a 4A player for the majority of his career, then you go ahead and make some adjustments. But for right now, yes, Oscar Mercado has solidified himself today as an everyday outfielder in my mind. I I agree with you. I I think right now he's an everyday outfielder because he's the hot bat and you play it until it dies off just like with Paul DeYoung. And maybe you'll get the situation where I am with Paul DeYoung where every time I think that he he ends up having a really good game. And let's be honest, if if you're the St. Louis Cardinals, if you can catch lightning in a bottle and Mercado can put up like he did his rookie year in 2019 where he was just 4% below league average, didn't really get on base, but had a decent amount of pop, had 15 home runs, 25 doubles. 
you sign up for that. I mean, that would be the second best producing outfielder behind Lars Newtbar right now. So I think he continued to ride the hot hand, and I think he will ultimately cool off because there's a reason he hasn't been in the major leagues for a long time right now because he is more of a 4A player. But you just ride the hot hand, and whenever he cools off, that's when you either send him back down or put him on your bench as a fourth outfielder. That could be a great defensive replacement or a guy that can come in and pinch run and try and steal base late in games as of right now. All right, final thing here from the 636. BK, what do you think of Caleb Love as an option for Mizzou? Do you want it to happen? And do you think that it is officially time to give up on the Kobe Brown dream of coming back? All right, uh, on Caleb Love, I would be surprised if he ends up at Mizzou. Guess it's possible, but I would be surprised. Um, I think that if I had to put a handicap on it, Alabama would probably be the favorite to land his services. I think Mizzou, it's too late now. I think they have already added multiple guard options or wing options for them, and they're looking at it as Isaiah Mosley is going to be their version of Caleb Love. I think Mosley probably at this point going to be back next year, and he fills the same role as what Caleb Love would have if he had committed to them in the first place. On Kobe Brown, yeah, I think it's over. I was talking with a guy who covers the league over the weekend. He was in a wedding that I went to. He talked with four different general managers at the NBA Combine, and all four said he would be an idiot to not stay into the draft. And the reason why is because he's going to be drafted pretty highly in the second round, according to all of those people. So I think Kobe's going early second. He's got a clear role in the NBA of being a stretch four that can knock down some threes. He's like a top seven or eight guy in a rotation that has real value in the NBA team. See it. He's got some size. He can rebound. He can defend Kobe Brown. I think is going to be an NBA player, which means that he's likely to stay in this year's NBA draft. Good. I was gonna say real quick. Good for him because we've talked about his story to where last year he's slowly progressed and stayed at Mizzou and built up. And, and we had the conversation, you know, could he sneak into the second round? And the fact of the matter that he's been able to kind of show off his tools and be a guy that's going to be drafted early in the second round, as you said, I wouldn't be shocked if he goes higher than uh, Hawkins. I think Shannon and him are kind of similar in terms of where they're going to go in the draft. I think he'll go higher than what Hawkins is at Illinois, and just good for Kobe Brown because he's one of those players you root for that started at the program and built up each year and got better. guy that I'm really curious about is Des Moines Hodge. There's some buzz that he actually might end up getting drafted now. And as a knockdown shooter, I get it. If you could just add a guy that's going to shoot 35-plus percent from three in the NBA— yeah, there's a role for that potentially on a team, especially a team that's not winning right now, and just find out what he can do. We'll put him out there, let him shoot for 12 minutes a night, let's see what he's got. Coming up next, Nolan Gorman is on pace to have one of the best seasons by a young hitter, not just by a Cardinal, in Major League Baseball over the last 30 years. We'll tell you the company that he's keeping next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Fox as Nolan Gorman has another clutch hit over the weekend. Guys, that's been probably the most impressive part of what we're seeing from him. If you look at the high leverage situations this year, Nolan Gorman is top five in Major League Baseball on OPS in high leverage situations. And now his on pace numbers are as follows. 44 home runs. 132 RBIs for the season. And oh, by the way, he's now batting 300 for the year. And his last two home runs have come against left-handed pitchers because of course they are guys. The last player age 23 or younger to hit at least 44 home runs and 130 RBIs at Nolan Gorman's age was Johnny bench 
in 1970. Nice. It's been more than 50 years since a player has accomplished the season that Nolan Gorman is currently on pace to achieve. Now, the chances of him hitting 44 home runs and 130 RBIs, there's a million different things that have to go his way for him to stay on that trajectory. It's really hard to accomplish. It's why it hasn't happened in more than 50 years. But I think it's more than possible that he could hit 40 home runs and 100 RBIs. That feels very much in the realm of the possible for Gorman. And if he does, here are the players that are Gorman's age that have done that in the last 30 years. Vlad Guerrero Jr., Cody Bellinger, Ronald Acuna Jr., Prince Fielder, Albert Pujols, Troy Gloss, because of course, A-Rod, and Ken Griffey Jr. That's the list of eight players in the last 30 years to accomplish 40-plus home runs and 100 or more RBIs at Nolan Gorman's age or younger. T-Bone, we're watching the development of the first middle-of-the-order bat for the Cardinals since Albert Pujols. Am I forgetting somebody that they drafted and developed and put into the middle of their order, and he slugged his way into this kind of a conversation? Uh, I don't think you think Carpenter's top of the order. Yeah. He's good good hitter, really good hitter. I think underrated hitter by Cardinals fans. But middle-of-the-order bat, guys that hit 2-3-4 for you, I think it's since Albert Pools. Yeah, and most guys that have done that have kind of become that, have been guys they've gotten in trades like Holiday, uh, Goldie, and Arnado now, but they haven't developed a guy internally, and, and now he's a left-handed power bat. It, maybe Tavares would have ended up becoming that sure. guy, but uh, since Pools, yes, I, I think they have developed him. And the thing that's so impressive with him, I mean, you mentioned his numbers and what he's on pace for. Now he's starting to hit left-handed pitching. We'll see if that continues. I'm still a little skeptical of that because he he didn't hit lefties well in the minors. But you ride the hot hand while you've got it. And also the most impressive part, and this was in uh, David Schoenfield's piece today on ESPN, his chase rate is down significantly. It, last year it was around 31%. This year it's sitting right around 23.9%. And he's demolishing stuff in the zone. And, and as a left-handed power bat, I think the shift has helped him as well. I was just looking at his spray chart. There are a handful of singles that would be outs in the if we had the shift going on. And he's one of those guys that's benefiting. But everything else, I mean, you look at it. I mean, barrel percentage, 94th percentile in baseball. Max Exavilo, 84th percentile. Hard hit percentage is uh, at 89th percentile in Major Baseball. He's killing the baseball, and he's killing everything, too. I mean, fastballs, we've seen it. Last year, he hit 194 against fastballs. Right now, he's hitting 329. That adjustment they wanted him to make in the offseason, he's made. He He's going to be an all-star. I, I truly believe that, and I thought that going into the year. But I'll be honest, when I said that going into the year, I didn't even think he'd be putting up the kind of numbers we're seeing from him right now. He is the first homegrown talent that the Cardinals have been able to develop in the middle of this order since Albert. Does his success give you more confidence with Jordan Walker? And the reason why I ask this is because last year it was up and down. As you mentioned, he had some struggles specifically. They've talked about it a million different times with the high fastball that's coming in and he couldn't get around on it. And now you look at him, and that's what he's doing a bunch of damage against. Like the four-seam fastball, he's slugging 550 against so far this year. Um, he's finding ways. That's where he's actually done the most damage is against the four-seam. They made an adjustment with him. And when he made that adjustment, part of it was in the regular season, but then he also was tasked with that during the offseason. It completely opened everything up. When he's not chasing that slider in a way and he's not trying to do too much with that four seam fastball, he's getting stuff that's actually in the middle of the zone. And 11 of his, I think, 13 home runs this year have come with a ball that's basically down the middle. Why? Well, because they have to throw it there. If he's not going to chase away, well, then they're going to have to come into the zone and then boom, he's doing damage with that. And that's something that the Cardinals want to see from Jordan Walker as well. 
it's not the same of trying to get the ball in the air because Gorman has always been a guy that's hitting the ball in the air, but it is an adjustment nonetheless. Does seeing this success with Gorman give you more confidence that Walker can make a similar type of adjustment? I I will say yes because they just did it with Nolan Gorman. So I'll, I'll say yes. I, I think that there's clearly something that they were able to identify with Gorman and help him in the offseason to change his uh, swing pattern. Now, with that being said, I don't know if it'll come this year. It may be a full offseason for Jordan Walker to make that appropriate change to get to the level that we're expecting him to be at. And, and, and again, that's okay. He doesn't have to be up here this year and dominating and be the rookie of the year guy that we thought going into the year. It's okay if he needs one more year of development. So I'll say yes. to. And the one thing I will say, but I, I don't think this is an issue because I think Walker's a very smart baseball player and, and just very knowledgeable of the game based on the conversations that we've had with him. And you hear him talk uh, to Bally Sports Midwest when he was up here. The reason I felt so confident that Gorman was going to make the change was I saw him adjust at the major league level on the fly last year because early on when he got called up last year, he started off well, then he went through a struggle. And what did he do to get out of that struggle? He abandoned the leg kick and went more to a toe tap. That's an adjustment on the fly at the major league level. And if he could do that, and though he ended the year very cold and got sent back down to Memphis, it made me feel confident that in the offseason he was going to be able to make those adjustments that the Cardinals were talking about. We didn't see that from Walker, and I think that's just because he didn't get as big a sample size as Nolan Gorman did. I do think he would have learned here at the big league level to learn on the fly and get the ball up in the air more. But I, I, I th- that's the one thing is I'm, I'm hesitant to say is because I haven't seen him make the adjustment at the major league level yet. I think the Cardinals can help him out, but adjusting on the fly during a major league season is a lot harder than trying to make the adjustment in the offseason. That's the thing I'm curious about with Jordan Walker, and we're probably not going to see that this year. We saw it in spring training. He made an adjustment in spring training, and it worked for him. But that's different, of course. I'm not trying to attribute that to regular season success. We saw a lot of guys have success in spring training that did not carry over, uh, to say the least. Carlson. Yeah. But we, we have seen it from him. And in the minors, Jordan Walker always adjusted to, to the level that he was put up to. So I think he's going to do it. I think it's going to happen. And for me, it does give me a little more confidence to see uh, Gorman go through this. And the reason why is just because... Man, how many different times did we see a high-level prospect for the Cardinals make it to the big leagues and it felt like never adjusted? He just, whatever the issue was early on, that continued to be the issue for the rest of his Cardinals career. It was the issue for Harrison Bader, slider low and away. Never adjusted to it his entire time here in St. Louis. Dylan Carlson, for whatever reason, just can't seem to hit right-handed pitching. It's It's been an issue since the day that he came into the Cardinals system. Uh, Paul DeYoung, it's the strikeouts. He just never seemed to adjust after that first season. And it happened repeatedly with all of these guys that were high-level prospects that ended up coming up to the Cardinals. And now you're seeing a change. Gorman was able to adjust. Jordan Walker, and maybe this is what makes them, instead of being like, high-level prospects within the Cardinals organization, high-level prospects in all of Major League Baseball, the difference is those guys can make the necessary adjustments to become stars at the next level. Whereas guys like Carlson and some of those like nice prospects in the Cardinals system, the adjustments they make turn them into regulars where they can just play every day and be passable. And that's what Harrison Bader was for them. That's what Tyler O'Neill was for them. Gorman and Wynn and Walker are on a little bit of a different level in terms of the trajectory and in terms of the pedigree that they carried with them throughout the minor leagues. Yeah, and, and that's what I was going to say was 
part of that, too, could just be that those guys' ceilings is so much lower, like Carlson, who you mentioned. Same with Bader. Though Bader's a really good player, his ceiling is no Nolan Gorman, who we're talking about as a 40-home run potential guy that could hit in the middle of your order. Same with Jordan Walker. I think he's going to have the potential to be a 30-home run guy, and that's going to be hitting in the middle of the Cardinals' order for years to come as a franchise-altering type player. I still believe that. I, I think guys like Carlson... They, they might be making adjustments, but it's harder to see it because their ceiling is so much lower. Like what, Every time we talk about Dylan Carlson, we said this during the uh, Juan Soto sweepstakes last year. It was like, well, do you want to part with Dylan Carlson? And granted, of course, other prospects were involved in that. But I was like, do you really want to part with Carlson? Yeah, I don't mind because like, his ceiling is like a good player. It's never a great player. And I, I think that's the thing that makes some of these guys different and why I, I do believe Walker will be able to make the adjustments and get back here to the major leagues. And honestly, would it shock you if Walker has like a breakout year next year and is no. a guy that's hitting like fourth or fifth well probably not fourth or fifth but hitting at the top of this order and doing damage against major league pitching wouldn't shock me at all yeah i could see him batting fifth for the cardinals next year and then wilson Contreras slots in at six and you've got a one through six of newt bar goldie gorman arenado walker and then Contreras, wow. which is just an absolutely absurd one through six in your lineup compared to what we have seen from them in previous seasons hey Nolan Gorman might be playing participating in this year's Major League Baseball home run derby, but he's not going to be, unfortunately, a part of the Fast Lane and the Ridge show from 105.7 The Point. They are squaring off once again this year in a softball home run derby. Me and Alex Ferrario will not be a part of this one, so you might see a few more home runs hit. Join us next Saturday, June 3rd, at Car Shield Field in O'Fallon, Missouri, for the Fast Lane versus the Ridge Show's home run derby. It is all brought to you by Swiss Air Heating and Cooling and Complete Auto Body and Repair. There will be also a fast pitch MLB alumni home run derby later on that night. It features Andrew Jones, which is an incredible get Mike Matheny, Bo Hart, Scott Spezio general admission tickets are on sale right now for just $15. Get all of the details of this year's O'Fallon Hoots home run derby at one Oh one ESPN.com coming up next three, one, four, three, nine, 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 six, four, six is the air comfort service text line. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are in or out here on one Oh one ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for in or out. You give us a scenario. We will tell you if we are in or out here on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario is out today. He'll be back in tomorrow. Tanner Hendrickson, though, is filling in for him. We got Grant Francis in with us as well. Guys, I'm going to start with an NBA in or out for you. In or out. Jimmy Butler will go down as one of the greatest NBA playoff performance performers that we've ever seen after he wins another NBA or a NBA title this year. I'm going to go. I'm going to go in on it. I don't know if he'll end up winning the title. I, I don't know if anybody's beaten Denver. That team's really good. Um, but I, I think I'm in on this. I mean, just the numbers alone, when you look at and and you mentioned this earlier in our 1130 segment, he's, his postseason numbers are better than his regular season <laughs> numbers. Uh, so I'm in that he's going to go down as one of the best playoff performers all time. I don't know if he's going to get the title this year just because beating Denver is going to be a tall task, and I don't think anybody can stop them. But I'm in. He's definitely going to be remembered as one of those guys to where it's like always really good player in the regular season and always propels his game once you get to the different level in the postseason. I'm in on this. I think Jimmy Butler has become for the NBA what we saw from Madison Bumgarner in Major League Baseball and like, 
2012 to 2016 ish that range i don't know what it is i don't know how he does it i honestly can't really remember a great nba comparison for this where a guy is considered to be like a star not a superstar but a star player during the regular season and consistently puts up like 20 points per game over the course of the regular season and then in the postseason takes his game to another level i think you see this a lot in the nhl where you have guys that are like really good ryan o'reilly i think is a perfect example of this he's a really good regular season game and is considered to be like at least in the conversation for the selkie as like a top 10-ish candidate every year but then you get to the postseason it's like oh all of the things that matter he does better than everybody and the game starts to slow down a little bit the little things matter a little bit more and so ryan o'reilly it's like hey man if you can get him on your team for a playoff run it changes everything about the way that your team is able to play i think jimmy butler has some of that in him he's like defensively he locks down in a way that you just don't have to and honestly kind of can't in the regular season and you can't define this and you guys know i'm a numbers guy he has the dog in him to just like want it more than anybody else on the court at any time. And I think his trash talk really gets to guys like it gets into their head in a way that completely takes them off of their game. So I think Jimmy has a little bit of Madison Baumgartner in him and that he just he takes his game to a completely different level once you get to the postseason. Do you think we're seeing some of that? Because you said we haven't. I was trying to think of the NBA guy that you said that's kind of a star and then really takes his level to superstar level once you get to the playoffs. And I don't think we can put him in this category yet, but I think he's starting to build up that resume. Jamal Murray of the Nuggets. That guy's, a, that guy's a really good player in the regular season. He takes his game to the next level. I mean, he dominated the first quarter in game three against the Lakers, and he dominated the fourth quarter against them in game two. And I'm just looking at his numbers. He averages more points in the playoffs in the years that he's been there than he does in the regular season. Really, he also does. So he, he reminds me a little bit of that. I don't think you're there yet because he doesn't lock down guys. Um, and he's still a very young player. He's only 25 years old. But if he continues that trend, he might be in the same conversation of Butler. And to your point on his lockdown defense, he's got scoring capabilities of a superstar, and he can play superstar elite defense in the playoffs like Draymond Green. He can shut guys down. And that's just incredible to think. You've got that kind of guy. You can go on runs in the playoffs even when you're an eight seed and didn't really care about the regular season. Somebody on the text line mentions the best comparison for this run specifically by Jimmy Butler is probably Dirk when the Mavericks won. I think that's a really good comparison because the team reminds me a little bit of that yeah. team as well, where it's like one or two guys and then a bunch of players Nobody's. that are also around them. Um, and that's similar to what it was when the Mavericks won, where everybody's like, wait, there's no way this team ends up beating LeBron James and this Miami Heat team. There's just no way. And then they did. And they ended up kind of altering the trajectory of LeBron's career because that's when he found out, oh, I can go play in the post and make things difficult for the opposition. All right, T-Bone, what do you have for us for in or out? All right, I said I'm buying back into the Cardinals. So in or out, they're going to be a top two seed in the National League. Top two? Yeah. Yeah. I'll say in. I don't know how much I actually believe that. I've been believing that since they took two or three from, you know, Toronto on the opening series. This is twofold for me. One... I think the Cardinals are officially back to I don't believe in this Dodgers team. I've been shorting them all season long. Now, I underestimated them. I do have to admit that this this Dodgers team is much better than I gave them credit for, but their pitching is starting to break. I don't believe in that lineup. I think they've got a few really good hitters, but top to bottom, I think it's pretty weak. So I I just don't believe that they're going to be able to sustain their current record. 
So I think the Cardinals have a chance to be that number two seed. I think the Braves are the best team in the National League, and I don't think it's all that close, honestly. So I'll, I'll say I'm I'm in on this. I think the Cardinals end up as a two seed. I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm in because I, I don't buy the Dodgers, and these injuries are a major concern. I mean, you're without Walker Buehler, who's not going to be back till like August, September, coming from, I think it was Tommy John, if I remember correctly. Uh, Julio Urias is now on the aisle with a strain in his hamstring, and Dustin May's got uh, either an elbow or forearm issue that's keeping him out until, what do we say, July, like the All-Star yeah, break? two months at least so yeah right around the all-star break is probably when he's going to be able to return like that is serious pitching question marks and their rotation's good when healthy but now you look at it and it's like Gonsolin's the guy that's going to lead you and I don't really buy into him it's and, Kershaw Gonsolin Syndergaard and Stone yeah too. Gavin Stone I'm not I think that's the prospect they work. called up today so gotcha. there, there's very much questions with them and I agree with you I don't think the lineup's that good I don't I think Arizona's a good team but I don't think they can fight for a top two spot in the National League. So I'm in. And then the Cardinals have an easier division to rack up wins in, too. Though Pittsburgh and Cubs are not cupcakes like they used to be, they still are very beatable. And when you look at the NL West, you got the Padres with a loaded lineup that, though is struggling, is still tough to beat. San Francisco's still floating around 500, and Arizona's no cupcake. So I I think it's an easier division for the Cardinals to rack up wins to where they can be a top two seed. Graham, what do you have for us for in or out? So a lot of... uh turmoil going up on in Toronto right now and with the whole Austin Matthews situation it's starting to make the wheels turn for me a little bit so in or out Austin Matthews ends up getting traded before July 1st when his no movement clause kicks in I've seen a lot of people bring this up I refuse to believe that he ends up getting moved and the reason why is because if you're a new general manager and you're coming to the Toronto Maple Leafs this is basically the New York Yankees of the NHL Your first move is going to be trading out one of the five to seven best players in the league. A guy who is a fan favorite and has put up some massive seasons, won an MVP for that team. I don't buy it. I know that there is real risk of going into a walk year with him and him deciding, you know what? I'm not resigning. I'm not resigning here in Toronto and you get nothing for him. There's risk there, but I can't be the general manager that walks in and my first move is trading away a franchise icon. I think William Nylander is the one that gets moved. I think it makes all the sense of the world for them to do it that way. He's coming up on a contract as well. He's the one that I think gets moved. I do not believe that Austin Matthews will be moved this offseason. I don't think he gets moved by them. I think he ends up resigning there. I Oh, interesting. I, I don't know if he'll resign, but I, I'm out on this. I, I don't think you can do I don't think the first move for a GM can be to trade the superstar player on the team. Like you said, it's like taking over the Yankees and like trading Derek Jeter. Yeah. Like you just can't do it. And that's the first move the fan base is gonna remember you for. And look, if you go on to win a Stanley Cup after trading him like that year, then sure, everything is forgiven. Yeah, you're a legend. But that's a one out of 31 teams that's going to win the cup. I'm not sure going to be that guy. So you can't do that. I, I don't think you could hire a new GM. If you were going to do this, you should have just kept Dubas all along and had him do the dirty work. It's like uh, Buster only said this before on his podcast. The reason new ownership groups, when they're, you hear the rumors of somebody selling their team, look at the Washington Nationals, for example, there's a reason a new ownership group didn't come in and trade Juan Soto. They wanted Soto out so when they take over, they can have a fresh start and not have to do the dirty work themselves. They have the previous ownership group do it. That's kind of what the Toronto Maple Leafs feel like. If you're going to move him, you need the GM that you know you're probably going to fire at the end of the year in Dubas. Have him trade Matthews and then say, oh, look at that. Oh, sorry. Oh, well, he did all the dirty work. Here's our new GM with a fresh start. Speaking of Dubas, by the way, he said in his press conference he was either going to be the Maple Leafs um, president of hockey operations or he wasn't going to be in the NHL. 
just reported by Elliot Friedman that the Penguins have officially been granted permission to speak with him about their GM opening. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. The thing with that is that it seemed like the ending of that story for Dubas in Toronto didn't quite go over um, well. So it seems like a little bit of a vindication for him. But the thing is, for me, when it comes to the Maple Leafs, they're up against the clock a little bit. Like, how quick are you going to be able to go through the process of hiring a new GM and also doing it before July 1st when you have to get Matthews, you know, re-signed before this no movement kicks in? That's the kicker because they don't have a lot of time. They have about five weeks to do all of that. And usually you take, what, at least two to three weeks of going through the process, the hiring process of a general manager. So it's interesting. I'm fascinated to see how Matthew Kachuk plays into all of this. Because I think Matthew Kachuk has now become the face of team building in the NHL. And if you are the next general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, that's how you sell it. You say, hey, we are making our big move the way that the Florida Panthers just made theirs. We'll talk about that and whether or not Doug Armstrong could be the one to make that decision in Toronto. I'll just tell you this. I'm not buying that. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Bennett keeps the puck alive. Kachuk with a shot. He scores! Matthew Kachuk! Bennett with the puck. Bennett cross ice. Kachuk scores! He does it again! Matthew Kachuk! A minute 51 seconds into overtime. A quick exit down the runway. Matthew Kachuk in two games in the Eastern Conference Finals as two game-winning goals, both coming in overtime. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Turner Sports. Matthew Kachuk is the face of the NHL right now. And I'm not saying he's the best player, but when you're watching these NHL playoffs, he is the one that stands out, at least to me, you guys could tell me if you disagree, as being like, oh boy, we are watching something special right now. We are watching a young player that is going from being a star in the league to taking the league by storm. And if his team is able to win the Stanley Cup final this year, which seems very possible, they're already out to a 2-0 lead in the Eastern Conference Finals. I think both of those teams are better than either of the teams that are likely to come out of the West personally. Matthew Kachuk is going to be the guy that every general manager in the league points to and says, how do we find that guy? How do we find a guy that is physical, that goes to the front of the net, but also has the ability to win with puck possession, can win with speed, can do basically anything that you need him to do on any night-in, night-out basis? Matthew Kachuk is a 100-point scorer that in the postseason is able to take his game to another level. That guy does not grow on trees, and it's why last offseason we spent so much time talking about him as an option for the Blues. But your last question that you asked in in or out, Grant, was an interesting one, which is, Hey, what do you do if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs? Do you end up potentially dealing a superstar player in Austin Matthews who's won an MVP as your first move as your GM? My answer to that was no, because I don't think you can do that as a first-year GM. Trading off one of the best players for your, the best player on your team, one of the best players for the Leafs in the last 20 years for such a historic franchise. That being said, if you were going to do it, the way you sell it is by looking to Matthew Kachuk. The way you do it is by saying, look at the team that potentially just won the Stanley Cup final. Look at their best player. Look how he was acquired. 
They traded Mackenzie Weaker, who's considered to be at worst a top pairing defenseman, and a guy that just put up 100 points in Jonathan Huberdeau for somebody that fit their team better that translated more to the postseason. Everything in Toronto is now about postseason success. Kachuk is a guy that can get that for you. So if you're going to do it, that's the way that you sell it as an organization. Yeah, and that's what makes it interesting with him because I agree with you. He is the face of the NHL right now and going to be the face of the model. I mean, that's who uh, Dubas even said in his post, uh, I think it was his post-season uh, um, media availability. He said something along the lines of, yeah, you got to look at Florida. They're kind of the team to follow. And, and he wasn't saying that based on their playing style. He was basically saying, yeah, we need to do something like what Matthew Kachuk did. I don't think he was hinting at trading Austin Matthews. I think he's going to go a step below that and go with Nylander or someone of that ilk on Minor that team. Nylander, one of those two. Yeah, one of those two. And, and move on from them and hopefully bring in assets to kind of do what you're talking about. Try and pull the Calgary route, but try and pull it successfully to where you're able to get into the playoffs and not be in turmoil like Calgary is right now. Uh, but I, I do think that's going to be the move. I don't know the specific team that's going to do it. I know a lot of what we've talked about it. Would the Blues be interested in I, I don't think the Blues are going to do it. But I, I can see somebody trying to take that step of, hey, we'll part with some pieces in our core that's not winning right now, and we'll go get this guy that we think that can take us to the next level. I, I think you're going to see it Toronto trying to do the Calgary route but be successful with it. And I think somebody else is going to try and go the Florida route and say, let's go get one of these guys because we think they can take us to the next level. I would also add this. I think you're going to see a, this is a copycat league, and that's why teams are going to follow this path. I think you're going to see a lot of bad copycats. I think you're going to see some teams that end up trading away either franchise stars that they try to get a superstar with that end up they take the wrong path. So, like, for example, this could have gone really bad for Florida. It could have resulted in them trading away a 100-point forward and a top-pairing defenseman for a guy that was a really good forward. Like They could have ended up giving two franchise stalwarts for one and then ended up being stuck in an even worse situation as an organization. There will be somebody that does that, that gives up too much for the star that they think is going to change their organization, and then they end up where Calgary is right now instead of being where they thought they were going to be, which was the Florida path of taking their franchise to a whole new level because you completely change the culture of your organization. That's something that I fear that Toronto might be risking. Now, that being said, there's one other thing that I know we need to get to with this story, specifically on a Toronto angle, which was Elliot Friedman's reporting over the weekend, and he was not alone in this regard. The Maple Leafs are looking for a new GM. They're canvassing the entire league right now because this is basically like the Yankees general manager job opening up and everybody saying, oh, I've got an opportunity to be that team's GM or the Dodgers maybe are an even better example because you can have all of the money. Every resource that you want available is there for you. And now it's just about going and finding the right players and making sure that you have postseason success. That is what is being offered by going to this Toronto job. So Elliot Friedman brought up one of the best GMs in hockey. Would this guy be interested? The one guy I've kind of wondered if it would ever work for him here is Doug Armstrong. Now, I know Doug Armstrong signed a contract extension in St. Louis. Like, I know he's really set there. He could probably be there for a really long time. He's an Ontario guy. Like, that's a guy to me, I think, would really embrace the challenge. and. I also think he's the kind of profile that the Maple Leafs would want. I just don't know if he's even available. But I've always kind of wondered if Dubas ever left, would he be the guy that they would chase? I guarantee you he's a guy that they will chase. I do not think he will take that job. And here's why. 
they have Brandon Shanahan, who is the president of the organization, and he basically dictates the final decisions. Like he determines kind of the course of the franchise, right? He he's the one that terminated Kyle Dubas in this situation. I don't think Armstrong's going to leave his situation here in St. Louis to take on that job to be underneath somebody else that ultimately has the final say on all decisions. Now, I don't think this is going to happen, but if they were to remove Shanny from that role and they said, hey, you can basically be Doug Armstrong, the hockey czar of our organization, then sure, I think he would listen to it because everybody would probably listen to that opportunity to go take over and be a legend with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But barring that, which I don't see happening, I think Doug Armstrong will be the one pulling the trigger here in St. Louis this offseason with significant decisions, as opposed to being the one that is doing it in Toronto. I agree with you there, too. And if you think about it, too, like Doug Armstrong is in a pretty good position with the Blues right now in terms of this is where you can really start to build. You've got three first round draft picks right now. You've got a boatload of good prospects in the system like Maybe if you were on a team like the Arizona Coyotes and you were locked in for a few years on your contract, yeah, you'd really look into moving to a team like Toronto. But with the Blues and how many resources they have in the system right now, I'd find it hard to believe that a general manager would want to give up what the Blues have right now. And I agree with both of you guys. I don't think he'll take it because I kind of agree with BK. I think he'd want to be in charge of the organization. But also to Grant's point, one, he's in a really good spot here. Two, whenever he if he were to take that Toronto job, the first move he's making is he's trading one of those one of yeah. those star players. So maybe he gets that trade right and ends up really guiding things and can become the hero in Toronto to where he can bring the Maple Leafs another cup. But it, it's really hard to win a trade when you're trading away a star caliber player. And if he gets it wrong, that's the first move he makes as a general manager, even if it's not of the ilk of Austin Matthews, but it's more of the Mardner route or Nylander route. You get that trade wrong. All of a sudden, the fan base is already, well, why did we move him when we should have moved so-and-so? So, to, to Grant's point, he is set up fairly well here, too. Though we can question some of what he's done with the defensive core and the contracts that they're stuck with right there, maybe he can move on from one of those. But he's got three first-round picks, some prospects to build around, and he's got two young, talented players that if they can take the next step in, in uh, Cairo and Thomas, the Blues can be right back into that playoff conversation. And we've talked about it. The Western Conference is open. You look at the East, the East has some really good teams that are run very well over there. So I, I think he's just, I don't know if he would fail if he took the job in Toronto. I think he would do great, personally. I, I think he would do a really good job there if, I he, agree, if he took it. But I, I think Toronto, there's a higher risk of failure Absolutely. than there would be here in St. Louis. But there's also a higher risk of, of reward. And this is not me saying anything negative about St. Louis. I think this is a fantastic hockey market. I genuinely mean that. Toronto is unlike anything in the NHL, and that is not a shot at all against St. Louis. But this is, it's like being the Dallas Cowboys general manager without Jerry Jones, of course, being in the picture, or uh, being in charge of the Los Angeles Lakers or the Boston Celtics in the NBA or the Yankees in in Major League Baseball, the Cardinals, honestly, in, in Major League Baseball. Being in Toronto is just a little different. There's a little something extra that goes along with that. And I do think that is a job that would appeal in a significant way to really anybody. But I think there's also this with Army here in St. Louis. He's got the ring. Like when you look at the job that he does here in St. Louis, we can be critical all we want. He can always point to that ring and say, yeah, but I got you this. And he's right. Like He's absolutely correct. And that being the backdrop to every decision that he makes for however long he wants to stay in that position, because he's the guy that built the team that won the cup. 
And if you go to Toronto, you're not that guy anymore. You're the guy that built the team that won the cup for somebody else's fan base. And now I want you to do it here. And if you point back to the success that you had elsewhere, it just sounds like you're trying to recreate the greatness that you had in a different market. That doesn't work. You can't do that. How many times have we seen a Patriots cast off that ends up going elsewhere saying, hey, look at all the success we had doing this somewhere else. And then it fails somewhere else. So I'm not saying that Army would be that guy, but it just holds much less gravity when you go to a different market, especially one like Toronto. And so I think it loses him the benefit of the doubt there that he currently maintains here in the city of St. Louis. So I wouldn't do it. I don't think he's going to do it. I think they're going to end up with, if I had to guess who their next GM is going to be, I would say it's Brad Living, the guy that was just in charge of the Calgary Flames. And I think they see, hey, he's willing and able to make these big decisions. He just navigated last offseason by getting, it didn't end up working out, of course, but getting significant assets in return for Matthew Kachuk. I think that's going to be the route that Toronto goes because they want somebody that's been in charge of a team before. And he's shown he's capable of handling this and making the moves that are necessary. All right, so that won't go well. Got it. I, I don't know. I mean... When the when the trade was made last summer, it was a good trade. I was the only one saying that this is not a good deal for Calgary. Everybody else was shouting from the mountaintops how you got a hundred point player and a legitimate number one defenseman for a guy that was going to leave, and there was nothing Calgary could do about the Goudreau situation. He held them hostage, and then he ended up leaving for Columbus. Nobody seemed to understand why at the time, or I, continues to understand why now. Yeah, I went to Columbus because there is, I still don't know why he went. It it was crazy. It was absolutely insane to me. And he was able to construct a team that, I mean, I I think their coach was a bigger problem than he was, ended up this season still getting to 93 wins, and he kind of overhauled the roster. That's not a bad team. If they get the right coach in there, I would not be surprised to see Calgary back in the playoffs next year. Wouldn't be surprised at all to see that as the case. So I think he can do the job. I think he's shown that he's willing to make the hard, difficult decisions. Now it just becomes, can you do that in Toronto? Because that's a whole different animal than doing making those decisions in Calgary. It's going to be an interesting offseason. There's a bunch of different dominoes that need to fall. We'll talk about that coming up in the 1 o'clock hour and another name that has been added to that mix. But coming up next, time for the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Hey, coming up at the 1 o'clock hour, we're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Dead & Company at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater on June 7th. So be sure to stay tuned in the 1 o'clock hour for that. We will also be able to catch up with Katie Wu, the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. But right now, it is time to dive into the junk drawer. Guys, on Saturday night, got to see one of my best friends in the world get married to a beautiful bride. It was a wonderful night for all. On Friday, we talked a little bit about this, Grant. And I wanted to talk to you about this as well. Because... Alex apparently hates weddings. He doesn't enjoy the the pomp and circumstance. He doesn't like the fact that he's got to be out all day participating on all of these different events. I grew even more fond of weddings based on the weekend that I was able to have the best. You get free food all weekend. You get free drinks all weekend. You're around a bunch of people that you enjoy. There's nothing better than this. However, I have been officially converted. I used to be a DJ or an aux cord guy for weddings. They had a live band on Saturday 
I think I'm officially a live band for wedding live guy. Live band guy. Interesting. I think I'm officially a live band for wedding guy, especially if it's a good one. If you get a bad one, it can go horribly awry. Yeah, you never have bad music with an ox corn. I, I think that I'm officially a band guy, and I think I'm officially out on, like, all of the structured dances. I don't need the electric slide anymore. Definitely don't need the, the chicken dance. I, I don't need any of those. Yeah. Let's just play some music. We can all figure out how we want to go about our dancing for the night, and let's go about it that way. I think that's the, the I'm right with you on that way. one, at least. Yeah, I was say, I was say, I'm in on everything you just said, except for the part that weddings are still good. Like, still no interest. Grant, I know that you are very much a, uh, a, a young man that has not yet been married, has not been in, right. in that part of your life. Are you planning a, a, a big wedding? What Where are you at on this? No. Honestly, for me, I've thought about this, too. Um, I don't even think I want a wedding for myself. Um, <laughs> nice. I think I would much rather take all the people that I would have in my wedding party at a wedding and take them all to an all-inclusive for like a week and just spend all that money on that and just have fun for a week. No stress. I don't have to worry about all I'm the in. things that go into a wedding. You just get to relax, have your beverages, and uh, go about your time. See, now that, that's a party. Destination wedding. Yeah, so that's what I'm in for. Wait, I don't have to sit through like a ceremony, right? No. All right, yeah, I'm in. The, I'm the in ceremony that we had over the weekend was seven minutes. Oh, it was I'm seven in on that too. Long. I can handle that. Okay. It was amazing. We I mean, got. It was basically like, all right, get the entire wedding party up on the stage, talk for three minutes, get the entire wedding party off of the stage, let's go drink. Okay, so it's fantastic. Okay, <laughs> I can kind of get behind that. I mean, it still doesn't top zero minutes, but I can get behind a seven minute one. So I still support Grant's idea more, but I can't wait till the invite to your actual wedding when you know. Yes. You find that lucky lady and she says you're going to have a real wedding. Yes. From the 618. BK, my wedding had. A dueling piano, or my cousin, excuse me, had dueling pianos for her wedding reception last fall. It was unique and very cool compared to the DJ route. See, I can see that working. That would out. be fun. I could see that being a good way to go about it. I would, I would love to see dueling pianos. That sounds like fun. I'm not sure how that works dancing wise for yeah. an entire night. I think it's a cool like one off. You could do like an hour of that. I'm not sure for like three or four hours as an entire wedding reception. If that's the route, I was but say, you can also like they take some breaks for thirty minutes. We just play music from a, yeah. music from a DJ, use the ox chord or say, whatever. But I think dueling pianos. I think more of like performance and not so like watching a performance and listening to it rather sure. than getting up and dancing to it. So I, I guess that is kind of the one negative I could see of it. But I think that'd be really cool. I, I'd go see that. I'd check that out. Yeah. That was awesome. Um, but anyways, moral of the story. Weddings are fantastic. Yeah. Go to every wedding that you possibly can, especially if it's in town. I'd it is well up, worth it. I'd every come month. up with an excuse. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, there's another name, a St. Louisan, of course, that has come up in trade conversations. His agent was on a podcast over the weekend talking about what his future holds. We'll tell you who that is coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, speaking of trades, the Cardinals with the recent performance by their team has put even more pressure on John Mosaylock to make a meaningful change to this rotation. We'll explain why coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. The Cardinals pitching staff hasn't really changed. 
What? The Cardinals winning is doing a lot of changing. Their record has been outstanding over their last 14 games. They're 11 and three. They've uh, done some real damage against Kenley Jansen, Freddie Peralta, Corbin Burns, Julio Urias, and now Clayton Kershaw. The offense looks much different. But guys, if you're looking at what specifically the starting rotation has done, even in the month of May, it's kind of the same team. The Cardinals are 21st in Major League Baseball in starting pitching ERA this month. They're 25th in strikeout rate from their rotation. And they're 28th, third worst in all of baseball, in batting average allowed by their rotation in the month of May. In other words, man, they're the same as they've ever been. What's changed for this team is that the offense has completely taken off. This month, they're top five in every meaningful statistical category when it comes to their offensive outburst. And so what's happened is, okay, we're able to win games here in St. Louis 8-6. to six. We're winning games 7-5. to five. They're putting up the necessary run support to give them an opportunity to at least stay close late, hand things off to their bullpen, which has been really good. They're top 10 in baseball this month. And then the offense can come alive late in a game like they did in that Red Sox series, for example. That's what's changed for them. Tan, the reason I bring this up is because if the rotation had just like started taking off in a way where you're like, okay, they now have a, a legit top three in the rotation and everything's kind of falling into place. Well, then that makes it really easy for John Mosaylock. He looks at the rest of this summer and says, all right, let's see what this looks like. I don't have any pressure on me whatsoever. What I think has happened is actually the opposite. The offense has put pressure on John Mosaylock to make sure that this rotation is up to par by the time they, they get to the trade deadline. I agree with you. I think it's twofold, too. I think it's the offense has done that, and the rest of the National League has done it, too, because this National League feels wide open. There's not one team that you can point to and say they're they're the team that's really going to go on a run. Maybe you could say that about Atlanta, but they're dealing with injuries on their own. But, yeah, they, they have to add to this rotation because the, this rotation feels so um, ir- or unpredictable to where, like, they're going to Cincinnati. Would it really surprise you if this rotation struggles and they end up instead of taking three or four splitting with the Reds? Because it wouldn't shock me at all. I think the offense is going to do its job, but the rotation has been too inconsistent to where I could see where they disappoint in Cincinnati. Any series, and I said this when they were uh, trying to get out of their struggles in April, any series feels like it's a flip of the coin still to me because the rotation hasn't been able to go to the next level. Yeah, you've seen a little bit from Jack Flaherty, but even yesterday's start wasn't necessarily all that great. He should have gotten out of that inning and qualified for the win and got hurt by one strike call, but he hasn't even been that good. Adam Wainwright's been fine in his uh, return from the I.O. Miles Michaelis has been okay, but there's no swing and miss stuff. Montgomery's been bad this month. Mats is still Steven Mats. You don't know what you're getting from Matthew Libertor. Like, there are plenty of big question marks, and because that uh, the offense is so good this month, and the bullpen's been really good. They they need to modernize the rotation. That's where I think the pressure comes to John Mosello. He's got to go find somebody that's got swing and miss stuff. It could be a top-end arm that can be an ace that you can point to and go, that's our starter for game one in the playoffs. It also gives you that oblique we're facing him factor because I think the offense has modernized to the modern-day game where they are slug baby slug. The bullpen has got guys that can come in and have got swing and miss stuff. And now it's just the rotation. And it's okay if they go five innings. I think they've been playing to their recipe for success this year where, hey, our starter goes five innings. We hope he gives up like three or fewer runs. And then we turn it over to the bullpen and we assume the offense is going to do its job. That's what they're doing in the month of May and they're winning. 
I don't know how sustainable that is going to be, though, in the long run, and that's why I agree. I think there's pressure on Mo to add somebody into this rotation to take it to the next level. Yeah, I think you could win that way in the regular season. I think you can make it to the playoffs the way that they have been. I don't know that you can. I actually would be shocked if you make it through the playoffs with the rotation that they have and leaning so heavily on the offense. We did get a few texts. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line uh, to get involved in the show. Uh, from the 314, guys, who are some of the realistic trade targets that could be available? Do you think that Chris Sale could be of interest to you guys? So Chris Sale, I don't know, is going to be available. The Red Sox have been playing really good baseball since the Cardinals left Boston, and even really prior to the Cardinals leaving Boston. They're now 26-21. and 21. They're only a game and a half back of the Wilds card right now. They're two games back of the New York Yankees. I don't know that they're going to fall into the seller category. I could totally see them holding on to their assets the rest of this season and trying to play this thing out, see what it looks like. It's too early to say if they're going to be uh, a team that sells off at the deadline. The teams that you should be targeting right now as a Cardinals fan, if you want to kind of keep in the back of your mind who could become available, it's the teams in the Central Division. It's the AL Central specifically. The Chicago White Sox, their entire rotation could potentially be up for grabs. The guy that I would be most interested from their rotation is Lucas Giolito because of the performance that he's had so far this year. Dylan Cease probably has the best stuff, though, of any of the guys that are in that rotation. Then there's the Detroit Tigers. Eduardo Rodriguez has been really good for them so far this season. He's thrown 56 innings and has a 2.1 ERA on the year. That guy completely changes your rotation if what we're seeing from him right now is real. And then the last one is the guy that we've been talking about for four years. Feels like the Nolan Arenado of pitching where every season we're talking about, hey, when are the Cleveland Guardians going to trade Shane Bieber and could he be a match with the Cardinals? He's been great. Last night he was on Sunday Night Baseball, was outstanding once again. 64 innings so far this year, a 3.1 ERA. Nothing about it makes sense because he's not a big strikeout guy. He's not a guy that pitches with a lot of velocity. He's just a really good pitcher, man. And so if you wanted to go that route, I totally get it. He's got another year of control. He's 27 years old. I could totally see him being somebody that ends up re-signing long-term here in St. Louis. So those are the three teams that I would be targeting. Chicago, uh, Cleveland, and Detroit, all in the AL Central. Yeah, I think the AL Central is the one that makes a ton of sense. And Cleveland makes sense, and Buster only kind of alluded to this in his podcast on Friday Baseball Tonight podcast. I don't think it would be a Bieber-type trade. But the Guardians and the Cardinals make so much sense. Why? Because the Guardians' offense is terrible. You could part with one of these uh, surplus of outfielders you got. Maybe you give them Tyler O'Neill. And he said on the podcast, they've got like nine starters right now. Now, I'm not saying you're getting O'Neill for, or you're not getting Bieber for O'Neill, but maybe you get one of their lower end arms that can come in here and provide a little bit more quality of innings to this rotation. I don't think that they should do that, though. I don't I, think that I, the Cardinals are missing like a, a back end of the rotation starter. I don't. I think the Cardinals are finally at the place where. Instead of trading for Jordan, like even Jordan Montgomery, whoever the equivalent of that is, this this trade deadline, that should not be the route that the Cardinals are going. They should be trading for a guy that comfortably fits in as a number one or two starter on a contending team. And if you can't go get that guy, don't trade the assets that would be necessary for a back end of the rotation starter. You've got those guys. You got like seven of them right now. The problem is the front end. The problem is the top of the rotation. That's what you have to go out there and acquire. I, I agree with you. They need somebody in the top end of the rotation. They need that arm for the playoffs. I also could hear the argument for getting another arm that comes in here and slots in this rotation. The problem is, is where do you put them? Yeah. Because I, I don't think they have quality enough innings right now, and that was a fear that I had going into the year. But I, I tend to agree with you, but I'm just throwing that out there because they would make sense. They need offensive boost. Maybe you can part with some of your pieces to go get a Shane Bieber if they decide to move on from him at the deadline. But I 
I, I want to address something from the 314. They said, uh, how is this pressure on Mo any different than pressure he's faced in the last decade? I, I guess my answer to that would be he now has a top offense that the Cardinals hadn't previously had and a top bullpen, and there is a clear need on this team. And I was just looking at 2013. Didn't really feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I wasn't really covering, but I was still a little pup in a big world. Uh <laughs> I don't remember you were that. like ten. <laughs> I was thirteen, um, but I don't remember that. Uh, I don't remember that thirteen team having a massive hole. That twenty fifteen team, I don't remember having a massive hole. Maybe they had where you could look at the rushing. Okay, we could use a tweak here. We could use a tweak here. But it wasn't one that was so marginal that it really changed the ceiling for the team. I think you bring in an ace for this this Cardinals team. I think it changes the ceiling from being a team that you look at right now and can go, yeah, maybe they can get out of the wild card round. Maybe they can win a division series round, but can they win the NLCS? I'd say the ceiling there is no. I'd say they, they may this team I don't think can. You add an ace to this rotation, I, I think the ceiling changes completely because you got a top-end offense, a good bullpen, and one guy that can really be a uh, top-end starter for you with swing and miss stuff. I think that's a team that could uh, – arguably win the NLCS and get to a World Series. Maybe not win it, but get to the World Series. Yeah, if we're being totally honest about the teams over the last, you know, basically since 2015, they've been too flawed. Like you can't make a rational argument as to how the Cardinals would then go to the playoffs and then win the World Series. You can convince yourself of it. Hey, get hot at the right time. Anything can happen. But let's be honest. If that team last year had won in the wild card series, which I think they... I mean, they, they were very close to doing so. I think they could have maybe gone on a little bit of a run because the teams in the National League had all broken down by the time you you advanced in the postseason. But that team was not good enough to convince yourself in late July they're going to win a World Series. I, I don't think, at least. I think this is the first time that you can... I know they're 21 and 27, so it's weird to be able to, to say this right now. I think the offense is good enough. I think the bullpen is good enough. I think the back end of the rotation is good enough. I think you're missing a number one starter. And that is, to me, the biggest difference between 2015, 2013, 2006, 2011. All of the teams that we remember fondly here in St. Louis, what do they have? They had a legit front-end starter that could carry you in the postseason. And right now, you don't have that. There is nobody that has stepped up in that way so far this season for the Cardinals. And I don't think you can expect them to miraculously. So... Why is there a little bit different pressure this season? It's because of that. It's because you, I think most done a good job of adding talent to the rest of this squad, but he's missing one thing. It's that one final piece to the puzzle, and they don't have it in place right now. And until they do, they can't be taken seriously nationally as a legitimate World Series contender. And so, yeah, when we get to the deadline, that's what we are going to be talking about. I don't want to have any more conversations about Jay Happ, John Lester, Jordan Montgomery. That is not the level of starter that they need. The starter that they need is a guy that is is the front-end starter for a legitimate contending team. Eduardo Rodriguez fits that bill. Shane Bieber fits that bill. If they're like if Chris Sale ends up pitching really well the rest of the season prior to the deadline and the Red Sox fall out of contention, sure, that can fit the bill. But that's the level of starter that this team needs. Speaking of front-end players, a top-line player in the NHL might be coming available this offseason. And oh, by the way, he's from the city of St. Louis. We'll tell you who that is and what his agent had to say about it coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Long 
alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Greg Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So one of the better young players that doesn't get enough attention is Clayton Keller. He's 25 years old. He's from Chesterfield. He was the seventh overall pick by the Arizona Coyotes back in uh, 2016. And just this past season, he posted 86 points in an 82-game season. And over the last two years, he's actually been a combined plus one for an Arizona organization that is in shambles. Nobody thinks that is a well-run organization. And in that stretch, he has about 150 points for the Arizona Coyotes. A really good young player in the NHL. And guys, he is somebody that could be on the move this offseason because of everything that is surrounding the Coyotes organization. Over the weekend, his uh, agent was on a podcast, Arizona Sports Podcast, and he was asked about what his client, Clayton Keller, is planning to do this offseason and whether or not he's going to exert some leverage over their organization to try to get a trade elsewhere. Here's what his agent had to say on that podcast as he was on over the weekend. Uh, Bartlett is his last name. This has been uncertain for far too long. And now there is an, a real urgency on our client's behalf to have clarity. Uh, we need to have clarity. Uh, again, Clayton, I'll just use him. He's in the prime of his career. He took a huge step this year. He's going to take another step next year. He deserves to be in an organization that has stability and that is pursuing the same thing that he is, which is excellence, right? And that's the real flashpoint for us. And and that's a big reason we're meeting with the Coyotes folks here later today. This has to come to a head here shortly. um, And I'm sure that other agents feel the same way for their clients. And he went on to say, not just it needs to come to a we need answers, like real tangible answers as to what the long-term plan is with the organization. And that can't include being at a college stadium for the next five years. They got to have something in place. Now, I bring all of this up because this is the last offseason that he doesn't have a no-trade clause. Clayton Keller, the no-trade clause kicks in in 24-25. He's making $7 million per year. He's under contract right now for the next five years at $7.1 million. That's a really fair contract for the player, given what his production has been. And he's a legit like top-line caliber player. I wanted to ask you, Grant, while, you've got you, while we've got you in today, where does he rank for you on your like off-season wish list for the Blues? If he decides, I want to be traded, I don't want to be a part of the long-term plans with Arizona because of everything that is uh, around this organization right now, the instability with this organization, where would he land for you in terms of your off-season wish list for the Blues? I think for me, he'd be right up there with Mitch Marner. I really do think that. And, I mean, we obviously talked about how Marner is up for the Selkie Trophy nomination this season. He's a good defensive player too, Clayton Keller. His line of Schmaltz, Hayton, and Keller, out of all the lines in the NHL that played 300 minutes or more this season, he they're top 10. They're 10th in the NHL when it comes to expected goals percentage, Damn. which is huge. Like The comparable lines right there in the NHL for that line is Robertson, Pavelski, and Hintz in Dallas, and Marchiso, Carlson, and Smith in Vegas. I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. Not only... You know, when I talk about comparing him to on my wish list to Mitch Marner, he's he doesn't cost as much as Mitch Marner because he's under team control at that seven point one million dollars a year. He's producing basically just as much as Jordan Cairo is right now. They're about the same age. Jordan Cairo is making more money. I would be all in on going out and getting Clayton Keller. He's a better all around you know player when it comes to all facets of the game. I think he would be huge. Not only that, but. For the Blues being a team that really needs sort of a kick in the pants this season going into a season, they just need that locker room presence. 
And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I know that Clayton Keller is a, you know, great locker room guy or anything because I don't. I don't watch much Coyotes hockey. But at the same time, you're talking about a player who has not made the playoffs in his six years with the Coyotes would be itching to do so on a team that, by the way, is his hometown team. I think there's a lot of positives there if, if the Blues could make that work. And I'd love to see Clayton Keller here in St. Louis. Yeah, I, he would be near the top of my list in terms of looking at what would be the target in the offseason. And, and that's with the understanding that, hey, you can pull off this move. You're probably shipping Cairo to Arizona to do so. But one, he makes less money, which is, to me, somewhat that factors into that he's making about a million less dollars yeah. per year, which is helpful when you're looking at the cap situation. And, and also, too, like... Like Grant said, I mean, he's been producing at Arizona, which has been a terrible organization, and he's been a plus the last, or he was a plus last year, and he was a minus two this year. So he's been sitting right around even while playing in a terrible organization on a terrible hockey team. And if you if you think Cairo can take that next step, then it's fair to say we don't want to do that because we think Cairo can do that and get production and become more of that 200-foot player. But if you have any any doubt of that, I, I think you have to look at Clayton Keller, I, because I kind of agree with Grant. They do kind of need a kick in the pants this offseason. And if that means shipping out Cairo and bringing in Clayton Keller, a guy that you think is going to put up close to the same production as Cairo did, but you think can play a better 200-foot game, I think that's something that the Blues would be interested in and really consider making happen this offseason. I think sometimes we fall in love with players that we just haven't seen fail here. And this is not suggesting that Keller would fail at all. I think he would be really good in St. Louis. I also think that Jordan Cairo can be really good in St. Louis. And so this is one of those decisions where I'm just, I think I'm higher than most on what Jordan Cairo can still be for the St. Louis Blues. And if you feel like you can get a little bit more out of him next year, and you think he can fit into the culture of what you're trying to build long-term in St. Louis, I think I would still keep Jordan Cairo. If Clayton Keller was a stud center with basically the exact same game, but instead of playing on the wing, he was playing center. I think I would find myself being more interested in that than his current position, which is as a winger. I just think you're basically trading one guy to have something very similar with another. And Keller's like his game. He's not as dynamic as what Jordan Cairo is as a player. So I, I think I would find myself leaning towards sticking with the known as opposed to trying to bring in the unknown. And I tend to lean that way in general. I, I'd like the known commodity. I, I don't think Jordan Cairo is a bad player. I think he's a really good one that you need to be able to get a little bit more from. I would stick with Cairo personally. Um, he's a million dollars extra per year, which is basically nothing in the NHL. Um, I, I think I would stick with him. It's the same reason why I wouldn't trade for Nylander. I would not trade for Nylander because I think you're basically getting more of the same. A guy that floats in and out of the game, really talented, going to put up massive goal production, but it's going to leave you wanting a little bit more. That's been the story for him up in Toronto. I think it would be the same thing here in St. Louis. I would probably pass on both of those. I, if you could get Marner, that's different. I'd go that route. It's more expensive, but it's also just a better all-around player. I think I would probably pass on the other two wingers, though. See, I I would argue that Clayton Keller is a bit more tenacious and defensively responsible than William Nylander. I, I would argue that, and I would say the same thing comparing him to Jordan Cairo. It would be a little bit different as well if Keller was like 28, 29, even 27, and we were talking about the comparisons with Kyrie. They're the same age. Yeah. They're literally the exact same age. So... When I'm the looking speed, at it like that, I, I just fall in love with the speed. But Keller's not a slow player. I know, but Kyrou might be the fastest guy in the league. Right, right. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're trading a slight discrepancy in speed 
for a player that has a well-rounded defensive game on top of the scoring abilities, then I'm going to take the more well-rounded game, especially when I'm looking at what the Blues need and where they're suffering right now. Somebody on the text line asked, BK, do you think that one is better than the other between Nylander and Keller, or are they the same in your eyes? Of those two, I would be much more interested in Keller. Yes. Because he's locked in long-term, which is a big part of this. I think Nylander, you're going to have to spend nine-plus million dollars after next yeah. year. You basically one year of cost cost control, and then you've got to give them the big payday. I probably wouldn't do that, and so it's not worth making that move to begin with. Keller would definitely be above Nylander in my eyes. For me, it would go Marner 1, Keller 2, and then just don't even have Nylander on the list. I don't think that's somebody that I would try to trade for. But think personally. about think about this, too. Who has Keller been playing with the past couple of seasons? Like when we're, or Well, his whole career, really, he hasn't had the line mates that these Schmaltz players have had. Player. He's not bad, but he's not Mitch Marner. You no, know what I mean? Sure. Like When you're talking about William Nylander, he's had all these offensive powerhouses that he's been playing with. Keller hasn't really had that. He's had solid line mates, but he hasn't had the all-star caliber players that he's been playing with. So I'd like to see what a guy like Clayton Keller would do with, say, a Robert Thomas, a Pavel Buchnevich. Like, what would that look like? The other thing to keep in mind here, I do think you could kind of alter the course of your franchise. If you went this route, I, I again, I probably wouldn't, but I could understand the rationale behind it. If you did this, you could have a top line of like Buchnevich, Thomas Keller. You have Saad, Shin, and either Verona or Kapanen as your second line. You could still make the move that we've been talking about with Ross Colton as a third-line center, trade like a future second, maybe a very late first-round pick for him, and then you've got Colton, Neighbors, and Verona potentially as like your third line that adds a little bit. Maybe that ends up being Neighbors, Colton, and uh, Kapanen, and that becomes like a puck control type of a line for you. I could see that working out pretty well, and then you've got a cheap third-line center at like two, $3 million on a bridge deal. Keller makes a million dollars less than what you're getting right now per year uh, than Jordan Cairo, and you've kind of altered the way that you're playing as well. You've become more of a puck possession as opposed to a rush team, so I could see how that would work out as well. I am not out on Clayton Keller by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just less hyped about the possibility of trading Jordan Cairo for him than I would be for like a Mitch Marner. That that one I think is a no-brainer. I'm the exact opposite of you in the sense of Interesting. I'm not out on Cairo at all. I think Cairo is going to be a great player and I think he's just going to get better. But I would be more excited about seeing Clayton Keller here. To, to me, Cairo, and there's no numbers to back this as sort of like a T-bone tinfoil, uh, Cairo feels like one of those players that needs a change of scenery to buy into playing a 200-foot maybe. game. And maybe I'm wrong. And again, I have no numbers to support that or anything like that. He just feels like that kind of player. It was the same story with Prawn. Remember, Prawn didn't really buy in his first time when he came up with the St. Louis Blues. It took him getting traded to kind of learn, hey, I've got to become a 200-foot player. And he used that throughout the rest of his career. Cairo feels kind of like that type of player. Last thing here. Uh, this comes from Rosie. These conversations have to include how you're able to address the defense eventually as well, right? I think the Blues are in a two-year retool right now. Where this offseason, I think they focus on their forwards. It's really hard to fix your defense right now because Great. of the contracts that you're locked into. I think this offseason, you try to remove some of those players from the equation, kind of similar to what the Cardinals have done with their outfields in recent years. And then next offseason, you try to address it with a big-time move. Now, if a guy becomes available, do that. But the likelihood is you're going to have to probably spend another offseason fixing your defense. Well, this year you fix uh, the top nine. Coming up next, Katie Wu, Cardinals insider for The Athletic. Very excited to get her thoughts on Nolan Gorman, who is putting together an all-star caliber season. 
And Katie's going to help us remember the legacy of Rick Hummel, the commish who passed away over the weekend, uh, the great St. Louis Post-Dispatch Hall of Fame writer. Katie Wu joins us to remember her experiences with the commish coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The Cardinals have won 11 of their last 14 games. They are now third place in the NL Central. They were able to chase away both uh, Kershaw and Urias over the weekend before the end of the fourth inning. This offense looks very real once again. And to discuss it all with us, we're talking it over with Katie Wu, the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. She's on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. She joins us now via the 101 ESPN hotline. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. How about them Cardinals? Hey, how about them Cardinals? I've winners of four straight series playing consistently better baseball. That offense looks a lot like what we talked about in early April um, when, you know, we both said they'd be a top five offense. And then I think you, BK, you and I were both kind of like wishing we could retract some words in April, but here they go making us look smart again. Um, great, great series in, uh, in St. Louis against the Dodgers, but really just a very sad day in the city of St. Louis, of course, with the passing up hall of fame writer and just, an absolute icon of a person, Rick Hummel. Uh, and I want to get to that with you here in just a minute, Katie. I, I definitely want to get your thoughts on um, one of the best people, really, that was in that press box on a day-to-day basis. I, I did want to ask you about Nolan Gorman because he now has 13 home runs on the season. He's on pace for 44 home runs this year. You have heard, I would imagine, ad nauseum from Cardinals fans on Twitter telling you how the Cardinals can never develop an internal middle-of-the-order hitter. Have they done exactly that with what we're watching right now from Nolan Gorman? Oh, man, this Nolan Gorman discourse is so fun because it's it's coming from a good reason, right? The Cardinals have... Cardinals fans have waited so long for a true power left-handed hitter to come up, especially to be developed through the system. And we're seeing exactly that in Nolan Gorman. Uh, a quick side note, I'm not with the team this week. I'm working from home. And my running joke with Nolan Gorman is every time I take a series on the road off, he goes absolutely sicko mode. So I'm anticipating like six homers from Gorman this road trip. Uh, we'll see. But when you're looking at Nolan Gorman and what the Cardinals have been able to do with him, I think we get as a society, as an industry – so caught up in prospects and having them immediately perform up to their, their hype as soon as they get to the major league level. And that is not always the case. In fact, it's usually not the case. There is an adjustment level, and we saw that with Nolan Gorman in his rookie year. He came up, showed some flashes of good things, struggled a bit to adjust, and then I, I think people were, were so easy to just cast him away to the side because he had three months where he wasn't performing well, eventually got options. That's part of the process in developing players. Very rarely does a player immediately come from AAA and take off on an all-star career. What we're seeing is Nolan Gorman having the patience to adjust to those adjustments that he had in the uh, second half of last season. We know that it's laying off the high fastball, waiting to do damage with the off-speed step down in the zone. And we're seeing the Cardinals and Nolan Gorman, of course, reap the rewards of that. He certainly looks like a middle-of-the-order hitter that's going to be cemented in the daily lineup, regardless of handedness. Uh, I know that's been a big debate on, on Gorman, but, uh, Certainly the Cardinals could not be more pleased with what they have in the middle of the order. You can see why they were so big on him and why they were so hesitant to pass on him in trade deadlines prior. A great development for the middle of the order for an offense that just sees, you know, currently no sign of slowing down. 
Katie, with that being said, I, I want to turn to the outfield. And, and it feels like the outfield now almost has stabilized with Brendan Donovan out there in left field, Lars Newpar in center, and, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Oscar Mercado in right field. With the way that Mercado's been playing, and I get it, it's just a small sample size, do you think the Cardinals are going to give him a run as an everyday outfielder? Yeah, super small sample size, but obviously Mercado's the guy that you just want to root for when you think about his story, drafted by the Cardinals 10 years ago, made his way back in the organization. And what I like about Mercado is he has such a dynamic skill set. And I think what we've seen with the Cardinals early this year is that a lot of their outfielders have a lot of the same skills where they're necessarily, you know, maybe bat-first players. They have the hit tool. I'm talking about guys like Alec Burleson, Juan Yepes, Jordan Walker. But their defense needs some work. Um, with Mercado, you're getting more of a traditional St. Louis Cardinals player, I think. He has the speed. He can hit for contact. He's smart. He's fundamentally sound. And the Cardinals could really use that in their outfield. I understand the importance of, of emphasizing offense. But I think with what the Cardinals have right now, with seemingly everybody in their lineup clicking or at least close to clicking, you can take some of the offense away from one position. It's not like Mercado can't hit. I mean, he drove in five runs on Sunday. But you can prioritize that defense that the Cardinals are missing a little bit in the offense, uh, especially in the corner positions, while they try to figure out what their uh, outfield of the future looks like, of course, with Tyler O'Neill not getting any closer to going on a rehab assignment, and they're still waiting for some clarity on Dylan Carlson. So I could see Mercado being more of the, like, a platoon guy, but certainly seen more starts than we expected. That's the last Cardinals question that I wanted to ask you about, Katie, is the immediate future of Carlson and O'Neill. I know for O'Neill, they thought he was going to be out on that rehab assignment over the weekend. Carlson, they're, they're waiting for that ankle to heal up. When they are healthy, and sometimes we know how this works in baseball, right? Mo would tell us these things have a way of working themselves out. But if we're projecting right now, what happens when those guys are ready to come back to the big league club? That's a great question. Um, I thought Mo's answers to your guys' interview was actually very telling when we were talking about Tyler O'Neill. He said part of a skill is staying on the field, and that's not something they've seen from Tyler over the last really two seasons. And it's such a shame when you think about what his second half in 2021 looked like. But the Cardinals have given Tyler O'Neill plenty of chances. They offered him a chance to run away with the starting center field job. He has been, he's had uh, trouble staying healthy. Dylan Carlson, a really unfortunate timing for this injury because he was starting to contribute overall more consistently. I still think Dylan Carlson's your most consistent center fielder. I know the metrics may not always agree, but, you know, certainly looks great out there. Um, but they've been pretty honest about how they've really incorporated playing time throughout. They're going to have to earn it. And if guys like Lars Newtbar, Brendan Donovan, Oscar Mercado are playing well, then Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson will have to re- uh, you know, re relearn their playing spots or you'll out there and have to regain them, I guess. But it doesn't sound like we're going to see anything from Tyler O'Neill anytime soon, Dylan Carlson again, because injury is so new. They're still not sure about an approximate timeline. The good news is that death that was kind of hindering them in April has showed out to be very, very important because there are so many key players injured, yet the Cardinals haven't skipped a beat. Katie Wu is the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. And if you do so, uh, you'll see the photos that she posted of her with the commish, uh, Rick Hummel. Rick Hummel passed away over the weekend at the age of 77. Uh, Katie, he covered the Cardinals for five decades. And anybody that spent more than two minutes talking to him, uh, first of all, could feel the energy and the love that he had for the game, but also was treated with countless stories that he had from his time covering the game of baseball. Uh, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about your experiences with the commish. What are you going to remember him most for? Oh man. You know, 
I was thinking about this earlier today when we first found out the news, and honestly, what a, what a tremendous piece by Derek Gould to commemorate not only his mentor but his friend and to do it in such a touching way. I, I, I think Kamish should be really proud. Um, but when I think of Kamish, I think about how I walked into the press box at Bush Stadium in 2021, first time as a beat writer, you know, dream job, have no idea what's going on. And I sit down, and little did I know it at the time, but I'd hit the press box seating chart lottery. And I think I'll owe uh, Cardinals PR, Chris Tuno, uh, a, thousand, a thousand thanks for sitting me right next to the commish. Um, I didn't know much about St. Louis sports writing coming from California, but it takes one look at the door, which says uh, the Rick Hummel press box, to know that the guy sitting next to you, whose name is also Rick Hummel, is a big deal. And... Um, you know, as competitors, that's ultimately what we were working for different companies. It's easy to get caught up in that. And it's easy to develop that natural competition driven angles that really propels media these days. But one conversation with Kamish and I knew this dude, he was never going to treat me as an enemy. He always treated me as a friend. And uh, I think when you go around Twitter and, and social media and you read these wonderful remarks about Kamish and what people had to say, it was really true. He was not only one of the best baseball writers perhaps to ever do it, he was also one of the kindest people. And uh, I was so lucky to sit next to him for the last two years and soak in all of the knowledge that he was always eager to share as long as you were wise enough to listen. (laughs) And we talked about things from strategy to writing tips to uh, relationships with players. And we also talked about things in life like, uh, you know, road trips, families, uh, stories, and he never had any shortage of things he wanted to share. Um, just a truly sad day in St. Louis to lose someone that carried so much knowledge, so much impact, and remained consistently humble and generous and honest and respectful. He taught me so much about baseball, but so much about life. And um, yeah, I'm just so grateful to have had those two years sitting right next to him. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me anytime that I go down to the ballpark and you get into the post-game interviews, right, and everybody's got their question that they want to ask, uh, the, the greatest thing is always at the very end of an interview, especially if there was a bunt that took place during the game, where <laughs> you, you know what's coming. You know what's coming between he and Ollie Marmel. There's going to be a memorable exchange between the two, and I know Wayno posted something earlier today. Skip Schumacher posted something as well about how he just has relationships with players or people within the organization that like it, it's almost impossible to be able to cultivate these kinds of relationships nowadays, but somehow Hummel is was still able to do exactly that with players, with coaches, with managers, etc. Uh, he had a special gift about how he was able to connect with people. Absolutely, and I think that just made him who he was. I mean, you don't become the commish for for not exceeding in every possible way that you could. I mean, not only was he one of the best storytellers I've ever read, but just the way that he went about each day, how he treated people, his conversations. I mean, he always brought a smile to everyone's face. And there wasn't a day where I didn't annoy him, I'm sure, with a question (laughs) or or a weird story that he didn't ask to hear. But because he was sitting next to me, I felt the need to tell him anyway. And it was always, always a a good laugh. And he never made me feel small or or if I had a question that, you know, maybe was pretty obvious. He always took the time to explain it in great detail. And again, we are direct competitors. So, for him to go out there and constantly treat me as a friend, he became a mentor of mine in some sort, whether he planned to or not. And um, everything that you'll read about him that says the kind of person that he was, how he treated people, how he wrote stories, 
everything. Um, it, it could not be more true. He was truly a special, special talent. And uh, I think baseball's a little dimmer without him today. Katie, we appreciate the time. Certainly, we'll be reading your work over at The Athletic, following you on Twitter as well, at Katie J. Wu. Appreciate the time on a Monday, as always. We'll talk with you again next week. You got it, guys. Talk soon. Absolutely. That's Katie Wu joining us here on 101 ESPN. She referenced the piece uh, from earlier today by Derek Gould. If you have any amount of time today uh, and you can only read one thing, uh, go read that. You'll you'll learn probably quite a lot about who Rick Hummel was and what his career meant here in St. Louis. If you're not familiar with his story, it's a great one. Um, and he's he's one of the best to do it. So uh, go go over there, check out the piece. It's on stltoday.com. You'll find that over there. Uh, Derek Gould did a, a fantastic piece uh, on Rick Hummel. Appreciate Katie for joining us as always. We'll hit the rewind coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, who's been doing a fantastic job with us today. I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Alex Ferrario will be back in tomorrow, but right now is your chance to score a pair of tickets to see Dead & Company at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater on June the 7th. Very few tickets remain for that show, but you can find all the details at 101ESPN.com. You can also text in right now at 314-399-9646 to win tickets to Dead & Company. A pair is yours if your texter number 101 on the Air Comfort Service text line, and you can tell me the following answer. What was it that Rick Hummel would always ask about when presented the opportunity to Ollie Marmel after a game? What was the topic of conversation? Anytime that Rick Hummel had an opportunity to do so, it was about a specific kind of hit. I'll put it that way. Whenever he got the opportunity, it was his favorite thing. He always went back and forth with Ollie Marmel about that. If you have that answer at 314-399-9646 in your texture number 101, you are going home with a pair of tickets to see Dead & Company at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater on June the 7th. Before we get out of here today, it is Jordan Montgomery on the mound tonight against the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati. T-Bone, the Cardinals did everything they needed to in order for you, me, and let's be honest, I think Alex to get back on board. But you are now on a seven-game road trip in Ohio. What would constitute a success in your mind for this road trip? Cincinnati for four and then Cleveland for three. Uh, probably five and two, I'd say, would be a success on this road trip because you should beat Cincinnati. I, I know, look, you can look at the standings and they're playing admirable baseball, being slightly below 500. They just don't know they're bad yet. That's a bad baseball team. <laughs> you should beat the snot out of them, especially with your offense and what I heard Chip call over the weekend, and it's true, uh, the course field of the East Coast. Like, there should be offensive outbursts in this series against Cincinnati. And then you go to Cleveland. You're going to have to really, as Mike Schultz would say, fight and claw to win that series. But you should be able to come through because they don't have a good offense, so the pitching should look better 
than what uh, we've seen all year because that offense is so bad. And your offense should be able to do enough like they did in the Milwaukee series to win that series and take two of three. So I, I think a success would be going 5-2 and two on this seven-game road trip. I think that's where I'm at as well. I think you need to win both of these series, three out of four against Cincy, two out of three against Cleveland, continue this winning stretch, get back home, play against Kansas City, go ahead and sweep that two-game set right quick, and then get right back after it on the road against Pittsburgh as well. The lineup is out, which means that the fast lane will have that covered for you guys coming up at the top of the hour for Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.